when you go on Amazon.com and order a stapler, it doesn't just magically make a stapler <laughs> appear at your front door. You know, there's people working behind the scenes. Yeah, it takes two days, man. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the RF Generation Playcast. I'm Ghost 81 and this is our discussion of our September 2017 selection. In this episode, the show resumes its regular format as Rich and I will take on The Last Guardian in a one-on-one discussion. This 2016 PlayStation 4 exclusive had a long and precarious development, leaving lingering doubts if it would ever be released at all. As fans of both Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, we'll tackle head-on the expectations and the realities of playing one of the most anticipated playthrough games ever. Please remember to subscribe to us on YouTube, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can listen to the show on iTunes and Podbean. As always, don't forget to log on to rfgeneration.com to join our playthroughs and discuss the awesome games we play together. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the playcast. Check, check. <laughs> check, check. Oh, man. Looking good. Okay. When you're in Audacity, you're, how much of the bar do your like waveforms take up? Like, Oh, the, when I'm talking? Like or? This, yeah, like the center third about? Is that what you're going for? Uh, mine's almost maxing out, but yeah, about, the, about a third, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I just don't want to be all peeking, peeking out. Don't be peeking at me. All right. Yeah, that's that's better. Okay. So, yeah, I've been experiencing uh, some good sounds in my life. Yeah? <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I sometimes talk about shows that I'm going to or went to, and uh, mm-hmm. definitely been going to a lot of shows lately. Um, I saw a band uh, on Tuesday night called Touche Amore. Have you ever heard of them? I have not. So they're like a hardcore screamo band. Are you in, are you into that kind of music at all? <laughs> I don't know if I'm familiar with hardcore screamo. Yeah, yeah this would be a track. It's honestly not one of my favorite genres, to be honest with you. I have a lot of mm-hmm. friends, especially back in New Jersey, who are really into it. And a lot of my friends' bands are these kind of bands. But I've never been into the music too much. But uh, there's something about this band... Their songs, like instrumentally, are very interesting, and the mm-hmm. even though the lyrics are being screamed, you can completely understand what they're saying, and their lyrics are really good. So, so this is not like guttural sounds. This is just literally screaming into the microphone. Yes. Um, okay. So yeah, it's not it's not like grunting or death metal-y kind of, and I don't want to get too, because I'm not an expert on all the genres of <laughs> punk and metal and hardcore, but um, the, the lead singer, Jeremy Balm, he, he, their recent album is just a tribute to his mother who passed away from cancer, so it's a very like heart-wrenching account of just you know going through the grief of losing someone. And uh, it's very just frank, and his heart's on his sleeve, and it's it's a tough thing to listen to. Uh, so yeah, I mean, what better genre too for something like that? Just to kind of scream it out, you know? That's exactly yeah. So yeah, so I I went and saw them Tuesday night, and it was really amazing. And uh, a couple nights before that, I saw two bands that I really like. One is Japanese Breakfast, which is like a kind of shoegazy pleasant pop band and the other one is uh this band called mannequin have you ever heard of them (laughs) no i haven't but (laughs) (laughs) they are an awesome punk band and they have a screaming lead female vocalist but it's not it's totally different from touche amore musically it's more like 90s uh grunge mixed with some skate punk and surf music and it calls back to like babes in Toyland or mm-hmm. you know yeah. hole with courtney love yep, on vocals yep. kind of music that's weird man i was thinking about hole earlier today I, I was thinking like about the album live through this and how much i love that album and i know that she got a lot of crap you know in her personal life and um and everything but man i, I got to see them on that tour and that was that was pretty amazing that's a great album yeah, you would, you would probably like Mannequin Pussy. They're probably my favorite <laughs> band right now. I'm not kidding. I've seen them twice. Uh, <laughs> they've only been around for a couple of years, and I've seen them twice already. And You know I'm really going to like? Having to edit that out twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they were really good, and Japanese Breakfast was really good, too. I don't know. Have you heard them? You, you would probably like them, too. I haven't, I haven't okay. heard them. I'm really into shoegaze. You've probably heard of a band called The Clientele. Yeah. Um, a lot of people you know, look at it as The Clientele, but I heard them on stage, and they're, of course, they're English. So, you know, when they say The Clientele, then that's that's how you have to pronounce it, is the way they pronounce it, right? Okay, so good to I know. Saw, 
<laughs> I saw them on tour, and I can't remember which album it was. But uh, yeah, man, uh, catching those late shows of shoegaze, you got to really be on your uh, Red Bull game for that. You know what I mean? Because yes, exactly. it, or you have to really be into what they've put out. Because if you take a buddy with you who's not into it, they'll be ready to go after like ten minutes. But uh, it's something I really, really love and and can really appreciate. So yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. Very true. So, but one of the the show I went to last night mm-hmm. is uh, I know this one, <laughs> the one that I was uh, very excited about, and it's a shame too. I don't know if I told you this, but it, uh, my friend Corey got me the tickets for it, and this band is like his favorite band of all time. But what happened was his in laws, like he was going to take a vacation. I'll say no more in laws. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to take a vacation with his with his girlfriend to, to see her parents and the parents bought that they booked the vacation and bought the plane tickets like as a nice surprise without conferring with my friend about the date that it was going to be. Nope. So, yeah, so he had to be on an airplane the day before the Descendants show. So, he gave me the tickets and uh, was very sad. We brought a, I brought another friend of ours and he had a really good time. But yeah, it was uh, the Descendants. And as an added bonus to me, we, we watched the tour schedule forever trying to figure out who the opening acts would be because they mm-hmm. tend to take good bands out with them. And yep. uh, we're just waiting for it to get announced. And finally, they announced the Riverboat Gamblers were opening for them. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard them, but they're just an awesome, like, punk and rock and roll band from from right here in Austin. And cool. uh, they have an album called uh, Something to Crow About, which was one of their earlier albums. I think it's just like like a rock and roll masterpiece, like on par with, like, Appetite for Destruction as far as, like, wow. just a great, like, gritty, like, smash crap through the wall type of rock and roll record i think sleazy <laughs> yeah exactly uh so th- they opened up and the descendants came out and man it was it was cool they they <laughs> one of the things i liked a lot honestly and you could kind of laugh at it like the descendants i mean they're old they're four yeah. old dudes but i really appreciated that from the perspective of uh i've been going to see a lot of shows lately with younger bands punk bands with a much younger following a lot of underage kids high school kids and they just run around and try and kill each other in the crowd um so to be in like you know an an older more refined mosh pit for a band like the descendants at the age they're at now it was it was very nice so yeah, it's cool. Uh, you told me you were going. You're like, have you ever heard this band, The Descendants? And I immediately went up to my little, I've got a little wooden cigar box. And um, it's got uh, some things in it. But one of the things in it are all my ticket stubs from all the shows I've been to. And I've I've been wanting to make like a glass top table or a huge frame of all the shows that I've been to. And you and I were talking before. That's one of the things that you don't see much anymore is these ticket stubs. But I had one from 1997 for The Descendants, and it was one of the first shows my wife and I had ever gone to together. And actually, she took me to the show, believe it or not. She is really into them, and like Fugazi had seen them uh, back back in the day. And this was 
1997, so 20 years ago, I saw The Descendants and uh, Less Than Jake, uh, a ska band who, who's really good, opened up for them. And uh, it's one of the best shows I've ever seen and really dear to my heart now because it was one of the first shows my wife and I had seen together. And she's the one that introduced me to the band. I'd heard Silly Girl one point on a, uh, do you remember like back in the day and maybe you might, you're a little younger than me, but Pearl Jam did like a night radio broadcast uh, and it was like four hours long. Uh, mm. I remember like staying up all hours of the night where they would do like live sets. And in between their live sets, they would play uh, bands like Gas Huffer and like The Descendants and, um, oh gosh, just uh, a, a ton of other bands, Daniel Johnson. And um, it, it was really cool because they would just insert these little tracks that they were like, kind of influenced by and stuff so I, I caught some of this music from you know sort of the west coast at that point in my life when I was in high school uh, and it was really cool it kind of broadened my sense of like what's out there um, and so that's where I first heard the descendants and silly girl and then my wife like her first mixtape she made me um, basically had the descendants on it and like Liz Fair stuff from Exile and Guyville which if you've ever heard that is a super raunchy album oh, but yeah. uh, really awesome uh, so that's so cool, man. You told me and I was so pumped. And this morning we had the kids in the music room with the vinyl records and threw on summary, uh, by the descendants. We were all just like dancing, you know, it was great. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I like talking to you about music because I honestly don't know too much about your musical tastes, but we seem to have a lot in common. So yep. as our friendship develops over the years i learn the things that you like and we have a lot of common ground yeah it's um, cool i wonder do you like rap music at all i do most of my stuff is old school rap i had a cousin whose uh, father was a minister so he had all the best rap albums uh <laughs> he had like houdini and the fat boys and slick rick and uh you know all that really cool early stuff grandmaster flash and so that's really sort of what I grew up on as a kid, listening to that stuff and like little mixtapes that he would make me and I have to sneak around and put them in my Walkman, you know, when my parents weren't around. And so I, I got onto rap at a very early age and it kind of faded away as I got older. Uh, and then I started listening to a little more like independent rap, like uh, Most Deaf when he first like kind of stepped onto the scene. And I really liked a lot of that, like really sort of... Uh, intelligent sort of stuff that that was coming out not the uh, booty stuff is not like you know what i'm really into but uh you know I, yeah. I, I do like rap that's cool it totally makes sense and i mentioned that and i ask you that because i don't know if you've listened to the there's a a duo out there right now known as run the jewels mm -hmm. and they are hands down to me the best rap group going on the planet earth right now and they have three albums all three of them are just top to bottom masterpieces and on top of that they can be downloaded for free from their official website they also have there was this kickstarted fan project called meow the jewels which they took <laughs> run the jewels to their second album and replaced all the instrumentation with cat sounds, like the sounds of cats purring and meowing and hissing, and redid the whole album. And it was completely endorsed by the band. It's like an official—it's an official release in their discography. 
anyway, the reason I mention this is because I bought tickets to see Run the Jewels. <laughs> That's in two weeks. And I can't remember being more excited for a concert than to see these guys. And I just got to throw it out there to you and to our listeners. If you like rap music and maybe maybe like me or like you, Rich, contemporary rap music maybe doesn't gel with you so much uh i find that a lot of mainstream stuff on the radio i just can't get it maybe i'm just an old man now or whatever but uh i think you would like run the jewels they're they're really like a throwback to when the lyrics matter not that sounds stupid the lyrics mattered man but you know what i'm saying like the they're not so easy yeah right it's right. not so easy it's it's more like thought-provoking i guess you could say exactly but that's not the only show i'm anticipating now i'm nope. really excited for some <laughs> uh, a tour that got announced earlier last week and i understand that that you grabbed some tickets for this as well you want to let everybody in on that yeah absolutely <laughs> um I was working from home, and it was uh, just actually two days ago. You are like, they just released Kishibashi tour tickets, and this is something that we've talked about on the show several times, and something that you introduced me to, and something I love, something I shared with my family, my kids, and my wife. That's the best thing about it. It's totally safe to uh, share with your wife and kids. It's great music. And um, I'm from North Carolina, and these guys are from uh, Norfolk, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, which is not too far away. Uh, I think that I mentioned at one point, this is um, a guy who basically plays violin, but it, it's, um, I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. If you, if you like something like Andrew Bird, I think that was kind of who I compared it to. And it's funny. I shared the album the other day with a friend of mine. He said, man, this reminds me of Andrew Bird. I was like, that's exactly what I told my buddy Sean that I podcast mm. with that, that sounds like. And, uh, I actually purchased two tickets for the November, early November show here in North Carolina. And it's actually, I believe, the first stop on the tour, which I'm really, really excited about. And my wife, this morning, she looked at me and she said, I am really, really excited about going to that show. Uh, Because, you know, we have three kids. We don't get to go out much. And uh, to see something like that is awesome because we have to be very particular about what we see. And for something like Kishibashi to be what we would spend our money on, not only tickets, but uh, babysitter for you know because <laughs> oh, yeah. we're looking at about a hundred dollar night for a babysitter but uh the tickets are 20 bucks a piece which is awesome and uh man we're so pumped about seeing the show that is awesome i also got tickets and i gotta tell you even to this day even the the great shows i've seen since then when i saw kishibashi about a year ago it was on halloween night last year mm-hmm. um still got to be one of the best shows i've ever seen in my life let alone like since i've been in austin um what amazing music and every everybody who i show everybody that i show him to and say like check out kishibashi the music is just so real like Mm -hmm. i mean there's so many things written about uh, you know, how all the songs in the world are written by like three guys and, you know, everything in the top 40 is just regurgitated or whatever. So to find somebody who's an actual like a multi-instrumentalist, like a virtuoso <laughs> violin player, a yeah. great singer, a great lyricist. And it's funny because I um, I listen to a lot of music on Spotify, but I realized that Spotify through your phone has like very limited volume and I could never get it as loud as I want. And to make matters worse, it has (laughs) that like volume limiter that pops up. And 
you know, when you're in your car and the, the phone automatically turns the volume down like more than halfway and it's like, this is not safe for your hearing. And it's like, yeah, this is definitely something you want to crank well, too. I, yeah. I mean, really it is. I mean, this is like fun music. Yeah, it's very uplifting. So long story short, the money I saved by downloading all Run the Jewels albums for free, I went and downloaded all of Kishibashi's albums today, too, and put them on my classic iPod so I could listen to them at top volume and just let all that music just wash over me and absorb it and feel the joy. Yeah, so. I have their albums on vinyl, so I get the free MP3 downloads. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Which, which I love that that comes with vinyl. I mean, vinyl's kind of expensive, like new vinyl these days, but to have that incentive to have you know MP3s along with it, I, I think it makes it worth it. It, it makes it a, a better purchase. So, yeah, uh, if Kishibashi's coming to your area, do yourself a favor for 20 bucks, man. Check it out. It's going to be a great show. I can't wait. Anyway, let's uh, something else to talk about as far as getting excited man three weeks to retro world expo okay i'll let you talk about this yeah yeah <laughs> retro world expo up in connecticut uh, rf generation we're uh, kind of uh, one of the sponsors for the show our buddy bill from the collector cast uh he's one of the guys that basically manages retro world expo and puts it on and it's in hartford connecticut it's uh, October 14th and 15th, two days, Saturday and Sunday, at the, I believe it's the Hartford Convention Center. Yeah, it's just a great time. We've got a table, and uh, we're going to be selling some stuff at the table, but other than that, come out if you're around and uh, meet some of us. I'll be there. All the guys from the Collector Cast will be there, as well as several other people from RF Generation. It's always a fun time. Just a great group of people, and uh, it's an incredible incredible convention so so yeah man you got to make it up there sometime i think you'd have a blast hanging out with all the guys from the site yeah i i wish i wanted to go back to the east coast it has nothing to do with the (laughs) convention itself and meeting you guys it's a real i you know would love to meet all you guys in person Mm -hmm. um i don't think i've ever met anybody from the site in person unfortunately but i would love to um yeah, one of these years, not this year, maybe next year, um, I can afford to maybe just hop on a plane for the weekend and, and go for it. So, But to everybody else, I you know I hope you support it and hope you have a good time. And Oh, and I just found out that there'll be a copy of Little Samson in the auction. Oh, my God. And do Stars you are lining like up, man. Special Stars preference because you work for RF Generation or what? <laughs> I'll get no special <laughs> preference. And actually, I'll probably be working the auction. Uh, Duke and I typically work the auction. I think Adam helped him last year. But uh, we, we typically help out just to sort of lend a hand to the guys and, you know, support Bill. So uh, I usually have to have someone in the crowd bidding for me. I had Floyd bidding on something for me <laughs> during the first <laughs> Uh, RF Generation auction, and uh, I didn't get the bid because it didn't go high enough, which is kind of weird. But uh, I ended up buying a copy of Panic Restaurant after the auction from the guy who was selling it. So that's how I got that for a great price. So, yeah, looking forward to it, man. I might have a complete Nintendo collection uh, when I get home. Very cool. Very cool. Well, you want to move on to some of these news items, or you got any yeah, other man. announcements or anything? Hey, man, it's your show. I'm just drinking at it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> this segment sponsored by Bell's Two-Hearted Ale. Nice. 
And I got some Tazo tea rocking over here. Now, I wanted to follow up on uh, something that we were talking about when we had Duke on the show, which was the N64 Kickstarter controller. And, uh, you know, Duke wasn't really high on it for uh, reasons that he eloquently, you know, elucidated on on the air. And, and I, I was just kind of agreeing to disagree with him. And I did, you know, I decided to back it. I threw my 20 bucks at it. Okay. And, um, you know, so far, so good. It looks like it was funded by, you know, a country mile and they got yeah. a gazillion bucks to, to make these controllers. They took a vote on colors and you know there was one thing i couldn't quite put my finger on which uh chris was saying that you know it's funded already so why not just wait for it to go up for sale and then just buy one then and there was something i couldn't put my finger on to say on the air but it was actually that if it's twenty dollars now what's to say it's going to be twenty dollars in free shipping when it's released to the public that's true um I swear that's what I was thinking at the time. I just couldn't put it, I couldn't think of it when we were having the discussion. Um, so that's why I decided to go ahead and do that. And sure enough, I think it's going to retail for twenty nine ninety nine, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I'm sure they're going to charge yeah. shipping for it. So, you know, at best now I've saved myself at least 10 bucks. So th there's that. And the other thing is they've been good with the communication so far. I mean, I get emails all the time that they're, you know, they're doing this and doing that and they want votes on what color the, the Model 2 is going to be or whatever. So, yeah, I just wanted to update and say that I did go through with it with backing this and, you know, we'll see when I got the yeah. controller. I'll, I'll be sure to let everybody know how it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Kickstarter. You know, people dog it sometimes and say, well, I can just get the same thing later. Well, you can get that product later, but sometimes there's things like stretch goals that you're not going to get later. If you just want the game or the piece of hardware, that's fine. But like you said, I mean, you're getting your 10 bucks cheaper as, as sort of a bonus for, you know, plugging into the Kickstarter. It's like Friday the 13th. My understanding is that game's coming out on PS4 October 13th, which is on a Friday this year. And uh, I haven't gotten my physical copy yet, but from what I understand, there's a lot of the stretch goals and stuff, like a lot of the um, alterations, if you will, of Jason and some of the in-game characters that you can be that you're not going to get when you buy it on PS4. And, and I'm going to get this um, great um, you know, special edition sort of box and uh, game, and it's, you know, it's going to be pretty cool. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know how to say it, but you can't always get everything that's sort of involved if you don't follow the kickstarter so i think doing that as long as you know it's sort of a sure thing is a good thing to do right i think so i hope so in in yeah. this case you know <laughs> we'll see i mean yeah. like uh, you said 20 bucks man i mean you're not losing out too much if it's not the greatest thing in the world so right right all right well Speaking of reoccurring topics here, uh, it seems like we talk about limited run games every month now, Rich, but they just keep popping up in the news. They keep announcing things and doing things and they released, uh, you know, 7,000 games in the last two months. So it's, <laughs> it's getting hard on all of our wallets and it's hard <laughs> to keep up with which games are, you know, causing problems and social media kerfuffles and selling out and breaking their website and... There's actually another piece of news that they announced, I think yesterday or the day before, that's not in our notes. Uh, I don't know if you saw this thing about the ESRB ratings. Did you see that? I did so not. they announced that 
I don't have all the details. You'll have to forgive me. But the ESRB ratings are, are changing in a way that they're going to have to start putting them on their games. Uh, so they sense. they have to go through the process, you know, with their publishers and their manufacturers and with Sony to make sure that going forward that all the game's ratings are printed mm. on the packaging, which is something they haven't done historically. Yeah. So this uh, deluge of games that we've been getting over the past couple of months is going to be at a temporary standstill while they sort everything out. So, Yeah. Well, it makes sense. After seeing the Metal Jesus video, and I know we'll talk about that, that appearance, but um, he, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Um, Doug. Doug. Uh, Doug was saying that they were like the highest, of course, publisher for the year for the Vita. And I think that they were really, really high up there for the PS4 as far as publishing. And they might even have been number one. You know, when you think about how quickly they generate games and get them out there. Yeah. Um, you would have to get those ESRB ratings on there. Yeah. So one of the things they did earlier in the month was when they released um ease origin i believe it was they said for the standard edition of ease origin we're going to do something different we're going to open a 24-hour window where anybody can pre-order the game and there's no uh, maximum there's no limit so you can pre-order Uh, you know, a case of games and there's no general maximum, general limit, you know? So this was something that a lot of people were happy about. I'm sure some people weren't happy about, but what they did, I think was really smart. They, to, to sweeten the deal for people who want, Oh, then it's not limited. Well, the limited edition, they did the old fashioned way, put it on the site and let a feeding frenzy ensue. But for the standard edition of the game, they opened this pre-order window and then they manufactured it to those pre-orders. So I think that's very interesting. They obviously learned from the the Night Trap and Wonder Boy situations. It's very obviously not something they're going to do every time because some of the games that came out after that were just business as usual. But it seems like, you know, they have a, a bigger release like an Ease game that they want to get it out there to more people. So, yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. And I I hope they'll do more of that in the future. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I I know it's limited run games. I mean, that's, you know, that's their bread and butter. That's what the whole premise of the company is based on, but it's kind of nice to have like a special edition that everyone can only get one or two of, but then have an edition that's just sort of the game, you know, the, the case, the manual, if there is one in the disc that's available to, everyone i kind of like that i think that's that's kind of nice and a really cool way to do it you know so the availability can be there for people that really really want these games and one thing i really liked about his appearance on the show is he said that you know they kept so many games behind and and one of the reasons that they kept games behind was so a if anybody's games messed up or there's problems in shipping they can make sure that those people get those games B, they like to bring them to conventions so that they can sell them to help pay for their booth at conventions, which completely makes sense. And by the way, they're coming to the convention near my place in November, so if there's any games you're looking for, Sean, please Ooh. let me know because they may have them there. Okay. And I'll be glad to pick those up for you. And then he said, you know, there, there's these people that are huge fans of these games, and, and we've had people like contact us and say I-, I missed out on this game i'm such a huge fan and would like send them pictures of like tattoos and stuff that they might have right, you know for the right. game and they're like we just got to send that guy a copy 
<laughs> so that's, um, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, how do you know how much of a fan someone is about a game? But at the same time, it, it's really cool that, you know, they want that person to have that game. They really want these games not in the hands of scalpers. They want these games in the hands of people that really love them. But, you know, there's only so much you can do. There's The scalpers and people like that are always going to be out there. And there's only so many ways that you can limit production of these games and how many people can buy. So... I'll get your thoughts on that Metal Jesus Rocks video, but I thought it was really good. It gave an interesting perspective on what their business model was and what they had to do and the things that other people really don't understand, what's involved in running a business. And I think it really helped me understand it a lot better. And I would, you know, encourage anyone who's really down on limited run games to, you know, really watch that video because I think it's it's very eye-opening as far as from a business perspective and what they have to do with these publishers. You know, yeah, for sure. And, you know, when the video came out, I was chatting with you and some of the other guys. And my one complaint is I don't feel like they kind of fielded any of the harder hitting questions about like why the website didn't work those mm. couple of times. <laughs> like th- they yeah. were obviously having some technical issues that they still aren't really acknowledging in the proper way, I think. But I did appreciate that interview in the way that you're saying, because I mean, my whole life I've worked in either retail or, you know, then manufacturing and quality. And now I work in supply chain and order fulfillment and logistics, you know, moving product around. So I completely understand where this guy's coming from. And I think sometimes people kind of don't you know like when you go on amazon.com and order a stapler it doesn't just magically make a stapler (laughs) appear at your front door you know there's people working behind the scenes Yeah, it takes two days man right (laughs) right (laughs) but there's wheels that are turning and there's things that have to happen to make that happen and you know the uh, business you know can be a beautiful thing when it runs successfully but you know, a small business like that, that, that blew up this like crazy fly. It, it was like a fly by night idea. You know, he explains in the video that when they made breach and clear, they knew that that was their last ditch effort. If it didn't sell, they were just done like that. That yeah. part of their lives was over if they didn't sell that game, but they happened to be very successful with it. And now they're so big that they have to make these adjustments. It's, it's pretty cool to, to witness, but, uh, yeah, I think people could could definitely uh, benefit from checking out that interview. Yeah, and uh, not only that, I do want to say, I know Metal Jesus gets a lot of shit, but uh, I think like he asked the tough questions. He didn't pull any punches in that interview as far as questions from the fans that were coming in and what they wanted to ask him uh and wanted to know from limited run games i thought he did a great job of moderating it i, I know a few times he was like oh uh yeah well we didn't make these questions our viewers did but <laughs> right <laughs> you know because it because it can present an uncomfortable situation when when you're interviewing someone like that and, and everything coming out seems to be very negative and we want answers we want to know you know why but I thought he did a great job with that. You know, props to him for bringing him on. Um, you know, props to Limited Rum Games for going on. So, uh, yeah, it's worth checking out. It's a good video. Cool. Well, speaking of reoccurring topics, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I even want to talk about this really, but they... Let's make it quick. All right. <laughs> Nintendo made an announcement that they're going to make more Super NES Classics 
and they're going to put the NES Classic back into production next year. So all this is so crazy to me. I don't know what to believe. I don't care. And I'm going to tell you something crazy. I pre-ordered an SNES Classic for absolutely no reason except for when I saw that notification that, you know, our friend Bickman from the site sent us, hey, SNES pre-orders at Walmart. I just clicked the link and signed into Walmart and pre-ordered one. At, like, no, no, so of, you do that. You're like, why did I do <laughs> why this? Why did I do that? But you know what? It was more of a psychological impulse than anything having to do with a Super NES Classic. It could have been anything. It could have been It was like, at Star Fox too, wasn't it? No, because I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, I don't know. A lot of people are just kind of laughing it off. Like, yeah, right, they're not going to make more. Or maybe people, you know, a lot of people are excited about that. They might be able to get one this time around. But I think the atmosphere around it, because it's launching in a couple days, like the first batch of SNES Classics is shipping in a couple days. So Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see if they're actually in stores. Um, I (laughs) kind of have my doubts. (laughs) So. Yeah, and whatever. I mean, if you paid 200 bucks for an NES Classic, I, I still don't feel sorry for you. No. It's nuts, man. I, I hate when Nintendo does this, and it's just, oh, they're just always pulling that string, man. It's got like that, you know, like that dollar bill on that little uh, piece of fishing line, you know, that you, you bend down and try to pick up that dollar, and it, they just, you know, just sucks it back, you know? Yeah, it's it's nuts. It's fascinating to watch. It's like watching reality TV or, you know, turning your head to watch a car crash or something. But it's <laughs> it's the people watching that makes it fun and all the complaining yes, on the internet. Yes. Yeah, that's that's what I live for. <laughs> exactly. that covers all our news topics here uh you want to get into some scores here i, I think yeah, both man. of us have some pretty blockbuster scores this month Ooh, buddy <laughs> i certainly do <laughs> <laughs> all right well you want to go first uh yeah so uh this month was pretty awesome i, I picked up some really really cool stuff i pre-ordered Inside plus Limbo for PS4. I think I got that for like 20 bucks. I thought that was a great deal. Two games that I have not played, but I've been told I really, really need to play. And uh, yeah, just pulled the trigger on that. I've been picking up quite a bit of PS4 games. Kind of going off of our Journey podcast, if you listen to that, you would have heard I picked up Abzu before that podcast. But I also have picked up a game called Rhyme which I think a lot of people have mentioned um, that was very similar to Journey. Have you played that one? 
No, but I've seen a lot of gameplay footage and reviews of it. I think it's like more uh, game-ish than a journey. I think I see people comparing it to Zelda a lot, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and speaking of Zelda, I picked up a copy of uh, Ever Oasis for the 3DS. I picked that up really cheap. I was really, really surprised I could pick that up for less than 20 bucks. Cool. Uh, being so soon, but uh, that was the price, and you know that's what I pulled the trigger on, and really happy to have that, and I understand that that is a very Zelda-ish like game as well. Our good buddy Steven had a sale. Oh, boy. And, uh, yeah. And he, he put something up the other day, and I bought it, and it should be here in the next few days. So I'll save that for the next podcast, because it's kind of a big sale. Oh, okay. I know what it is, but I get it. I get it. All right. But I did pick up two other games from Steven, two Sega Saturn games that had been really looking forward to playing. And we talked about one in our Shining Force podcast, and that was Shining Wisdom. Uh, so I did pick that up and I picked up Shining the Holy Ark. I was not planning on buying these games, but just happened to send Steven a message. Hey man, what do you want for these two games? I'm not going to tell anybody what I paid for these two games, but (laughs) suffice to say when the price came back, I was like, I just can't say no. This this is what always happens with him. (laughs) I hate it. I love it and hate it at the same time. It's like... Oh, I really want this game. I don't want to pay what this game is going for. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just going to send him an email, see what he wants. I get the email back, and I'm just like, you know, I've got, okay, he's probably going to want this for it, and I'm just not going to pay that. And then I get the email back, and I'm just like, ah, how can anyone in their right mind pass up? I'm never going to find this game for that. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's the thing about dealing with Steven is that, like, <laughs> He's so flawlessly, perfectly reasonable every single time. I've never haggled with him. Like, we've gone back and forth. Like, if I do this, will you do this? If I do this, will you do this? But I've never went, oh, can you go lower? Like, I've never said that to him, ever. Yeah, you know what? It's it's like, Stephen, if you're listening, man, don't ever start selling crack. (laughs) Because you would be, like, the best crack dealer out there. (laughs) It's pretty much what it is. It's like video game crack that he's selling us. (laughs) Uh, but such a great guy, so nice. Prices are just extraordinary. Check out his thread on RF Generation. And not only that, man, everything he sells you is in, always in such nice condition. If it's not, if it's got flaws on it, I mean, he, he lets you know, of yeah. course. But, uh, yeah, it's just amazing. Let me move on from that. I said that, you know, I pre-ordered Inside and Limbo, and I've also pre-ordered, like, three or four other things. Man, I'm getting so into pre-orders now. It's killing me. Like, I'll go on Amazon and I'll find out, okay, this is selling for this. And, you know, okay, I can pre-order it and get it for this price. I mean, I'm not doing GameStop pre-orders, but I'm doing, like, Amazon. And it's so awesome. The prices are so good. Well, we should explain. If you have Prime, it's 20% off uh, pre-ordering video games. So it's kind of hard not to a lot of the time. Yeah, and this next game that I got, man, I got an email the other day about this next game that I got. And at some point after I had ordered it, the price dropped. So they sent me money back for the difference. Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) That's amazing. So anyway, I got Metroid 2. And I know a lot of people have been kind of tough on this game just because of the amiibo thing and how the amiibos can unlock you know some of the extra stuff in the game not only the two old amiibos but the two new ones that they just sold with it but uh yeah man yeah so i I picked that up very cool but then the last thing that i've picked up so (sighs) 
I've mentioned before, I collect pinball machines. I have several. I've never gotten any arcade cabs, but my neighbor has like 35 to 40 cabs. And a uh, really awesome guy. We've become like really close friends. And uh, I kind of been looking for a cab for a while that I wanted to turn into a multi-cab. You know, some of the old classic games, you know, do like a 60 and one board in. And I found one for sale locally that was cool. We went and checked it out. And I ended up picking up a Twin Cobra cabinet. The cool thing about the Twin Cobra is that it is in a Super Pac-Man cabinet. So I'm going to completely restore this cabinet back to a Super Pac-Man so it has the Super Pac-Man stuff on it. It looks really cool. But I'm going to put a multiplayer board inside of it so that the kids and I can play things like Frogger and uh, Galaga and Donkey Kong. You know, all the really, really classic games. I just thought that would be just a really cool thing to have in my uh, my arcade and sometimes when you go and pick up something, they have a lot of other things for sale. Like you might stumble on like kind of a warehouse kind of place that you pick something up in. Hmm. And they had a two-player gauntlet cab. Now, it doesn't have a screen. It has the board. It has the cab. But my neighbor, who knows a lot about these things, he said, dude, you need to pick that up. That is super, super rare. Wow. Most gauntlet cabs are four-player, but this is a two-player, and it is super rare. It's in super, super nice condition. I got it for an incredible price, and so it was just kind of one of those things where I'm like, I really only wanted one arcade cabinet, but man, at the price this is and the rarity of it, and I really love like rare games and things like that. Um, most of my pinball collections, a lot of rare games, I, I got to pick it up. And, and I love the sounds in Gauntlet. I love the attract mode and, the, and the, just the sounds it kind of creates. And it gives you that nice arcade sound. And uh, the cabinet's just beautiful, man. I've, I've posted pictures of it, I think, on Twitter. So, yeah, definitely check out my feed uh, and look at some pictures of that. It is a thing of beauty, man. And I am so stoked to have it. And I'm so glad that my neighbor kept bugging me and talking me into buying it. Because he already has the four-player cab. And he's like, I've never seen a two-player. And only wow. a handful of four-players. So he kind of talked me into it. He's like, I feel kind of bad for talking you into it. I said, <laughs> I said, no, man. I said, I'm glad you did because I'm really, really excited to have it. And it's going to be a, just a great addition to the arcade and, you know, something really cool for the kids to play with me. So that's it, man. That's my scores. That is awesome. Congratulations on the on jumping into the arcade world. That's something that I was kind of wondering if yeah. and when that would ever happen with you because you already were in the pinball machine world, so. Yeah, well, I pushed it away for so long. You know, I really have. Mm. I've, I've never wanted to do it. I had no interest in it, and the only interest I did have in it was the multicade. Right, right. And uh, I know you even mentioned at one point when we were talking, you're like, yeah, I thought about doing that. It's not an extremely expensive thing to do if you do it right, and, uh, you know, you and I can talk off mic about that sometime. I can tell you, you know, kind of what to do and kind of what to look for. Sure. Um, if that's something that you're ever interested in. Very cool, man. Well, I guess uh, I can talk about some of my scores here. I didn't log a lot of my scores here because I have some big ones. And I also bought a lot of hardware, not any arcade cabinets yet, but... I'll start off with, uh, I got a bunch of Vita games. I'm showing the Vita a lot of love this month. Part of the reason, too, is because of that Amazon pre-order deal. You can get a lot of brand new Vita games for around $20 if you pre-order them. 
Um, yeah. So I got Mary Skelter, which is supposed to be this dungeon crawler. I got Drive Girls, which unfortunately was not as good as I was hoping for. It's another anime girl hack and slash game um, where your anime girl can transform into a car and drive around like it's a racing game, which on paper sounds amazing. <laughs> but in execution, it, it wasn't really that good. I played it for a couple hours and uh, it, it's on the shelf for now, let's just say. I grabbed uh, Walking Dead Season 2 on Vita just because I was putting in an Amazon order, and it, it that game is $7 on Amazon, so I said, why the hell not? Now, is this the Telltale game? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Played the first one way back when it came out and still haven't played the second one. I think I have it from PlayStation Plus on the PlayStation 3 or 4. I can't remember, but I figured, eh, why not grab it on the Vita? And I got As Divine Hearts from Limited Run Games. The last Vita score I got was uh, digital only. That's going to rankle some of our listeners, but I had to do it because it's the... um, I can hear their skin crawling right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these games exist in physical format, but they're very, very hard to find and very expensive. Uh, And that's the Atelier Arland trilogy, of which these are the uh, deluxe version of the game. So it's Atelier Rorona Plus, which is like the enhanced version of Atelier Rorona, which is one of my favorite games of all time. So it has three Atelier games from that storyline, let's say. And uh, there was a red hot flash sale on PlayStation Network at a price I couldn't refuse. So I had to go on and grab those games because they're some of my favorites. And with Rorona, I haven't played the Plus version yet, so I thought, oh, that's a good opportunity to grab that and play it on the Vita. So yeah, showing the Vita some love here. And uh, moving on, I also had some red-hot mega blockbuster deals with Steven. Crack dealer. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is very much like a crack dealer because he puts this crazy crap on his thread and you look at it and you at the time you can only afford okay i need i really want that game but then a couple weeks later after you get your next paycheck you're gonna go back and say hey do you still have that (laughs) (laughs) first i got einhander from him which was awesome man yeah congratulations thanks man that's really like something it wasn't at the top of my like wants list, my wish list. It wasn't like a dream game of mine, but I figured that's one that's not super duper expensive. It's not cheap, but it's not, you know, off the radar expensive, and I just had some PayPal money to kick around, so I bought that from him. And then later on down the line, and it's funny, I want to throw back again to the episode that Duke was on where I made a joke. I, I jokingly said that I picked up uh, Magic Knight Ray Earth for the Saturn. And I really did pick up a Japanese version of that game at that time. Mm-hmm. And even then, I would never dream that I would have Magic Knight Ray Earth for the Saturn, the U.S. release, which was the last Saturn game ever published in North America. It's one of the rarest, one of the most expensive, probably behind only Panzer Dragoon Saga. And Steven puts one up in his thread, you know? <laughs> Again, it's like, 
I know I can't afford that, but let me ask. Yeah. And then you ask, you just, and then you're like, damn. Yep. I, I just <laughs> knew that if I opened that door, we could make it happen somehow. And that's basically what I told him. Like, dude, I don't know what we can do here, but let's just start talking about this. When he starts taking payment plans, we're going to be So the good thing is that it was a trade and cash deal. So I sent him a bunch of stuff that he wanted. So I was able to like kind of soften the blow monetarily of getting this. It's easily now the most valuable game in my collection, like probably by double over its next competitor, you know, from the collection. So... So yeah, I own a legit North American copy of Magic Knight Ray Earth for the Saturn, which is awesome because that's the game that kind of got me into the franchise. I've mentioned this on the show before. I'm a huge fan of the manga and the anime, and uh, I love the games. There's other games. There's uh, Super Nintendo games. I have the Game Boy game, Uh, but the Saturn game is what got me into it. It's a really good game, Uh, and I wish more people could play it. I hope that someday Saturn emulation gets to a point where games like this are easier to play. For now, you just have to either get a copy or mod your Saturn. But someday, hopefully on the horizon, there will be flashcards for Saturn. And I know that's being worked on. So uh, (laughs) Magic Knight Ray Earth, keep it in your mind because, you know, hopefully someday it'll be easier to play. So yeah, moving on, I I mentioned I did get a bunch of hardware recently too. Once again, mentioned on the show that I was going to buy an Xbox One, and I did, and I'm really happy with my purchase because it's fulfilling the needs that I wanted it to, which is I wanted an extra Blu-ray player in in this room, and it happens to be 360 backwards compatible, and it, it will be original Xbox backwards compatible. And, you know, instead of just buying a Blu-ray player or another PlayStation 4, I have access now to another, you know, library of games. And for sure, there are not a ton of Xbox One exclusive games, let alone like must have or very good ones. But I've been mostly happy with what I've played on it so far. And we can get into that in the what are you playing? (laughs) But uh it's serving the purpose that I bought it for perfectly, and I'm very happy with it. I also, just real quick, I bought very cheaply the parts for uh, the PlayStation 2 mod that Addicted wrote about on the site. Oh, okay. So I just cool. wanted to give him a shout out because he... Cool article. Yeah. It was awesome, and some people might not know this i mentioned it on his article that he's been kind of helping me behind the scenes try to get this working on my ps2 and we were i bought all these weird things i bought a hard drive and this weird like chinese uh, network adapter and i couldn't get anything to work it was mostly my fault because i was buying the wrong wires that didn't work with my computer it really had nothing to do with addicted help he he was <laughs> he was doing his best i i was the one who was fumbling trying to figure out what i was doing but uh with his article there it was just a totally different approach 
And this time it worked. It's about $15 worth of parts. And, you know, it's two adapters and the SD card of your choosing. So I got 128 gig micro SD and that fits about 50 PS2 games, give or take, depending on how big they are. So, yeah, if you want to save the laser on your PS2 or you have a PS2 with a dead laser, if you happen to have an official uh, network adapter on it, this works with fat PS2s only. But those are dime a dozen. If you, you know, you find one at a Goodwill, uh, you don't have to worry about if the laser is broken because you can do this mod and, and just rip your games to the SD card and play them off there. It's it's pretty perfect. So Very cool. Yeah, so I did that. And the last thing... Uh, I got this cool little gizmo, a cool little gadget called uh, the GPD-XD. And this is something that I just discovered on YouTube. And I've probably watched 30 YouTube videos about this thing. In-depth reviews and what it can and can't do. It's an Android tablet that is in the form factor of a 3DS XL. Picture a 3DS XL, but only the top screen And where the bottom screen would be, you have a full controller layout, including two thumbsticks and uh, all your face buttons and a whole bunch of extra menu buttons and everything else. And what it is, it's it's an Android tablet and it's built for emulation and gaming. So... Uh, This thing can play anything you throw at it up to and including, you know, the PlayStation 1 and Dreamcast and also Android. So I'm not a big Android gamer because I don't like using my cell phone screen touch controls to play video games. I think it's terrible most of the time. But the games that you can play on this that are Android games are very modern feeling. You know, I was playing this Gears of War clone. I forget what it was called, but it felt like I was playing Gears of War on my you know device. So it's very cool. I'm very happy with it. I've played tons of games on it, which I'll tell you all about in, in our next segment. But man, when I got this thing, I couldn't put it down and I got it all sweaty and greasy from playing it constantly. I had to <laughs> clean it off all the time because I was just playing it constantly. Um, Sending me messages. Hey, man, what's some good beat em ups? Yes, play? exactly. The only real complaint about it I have is that it has a plastic screen as, a, as opposed to a glass one. So I'm af- always afraid to touch it. It's the same thing with my DS and my 3DS. I know it's a touch screen, but I hate using it. <laughs> you know, like if I have a game that's like heavily touch controlled, I'm always like nervous about, you know, scraping my stylus all over the screen. But uh, so rather than putting my grubby fingerprints all over this thing, I just I'm using a uh, haptic stylus to, you know, use the touchscreen. But you're not using the touchscreen a lot at all because you're using the built in controller. So, yeah, GPDXD. It's a weird Chinese 3DS knockoff that is amazing for all kinds of gaming shenanigans. So that's it for me, man, as far as pickups go. Well, we can get into our next segment then. Okay. Uh, Rich, let me think for a minute. What is our next segment? Oh, (laughs) I remember. Hey, Rich, uh, what are you playing? (laughs) Well, (laughs) surprisingly, I've been playing a lot of other games outside of our playthrough this month. That's cool. Um, And um, been having a lot of fun, you know, with the kids, watching a few. Actually, been playing one with the wife, who is a non-gamer. 
if you listen to our show with Buried on Mars, we talked about a game called Overcooked. And so I had bought a second PS4 controller on Prime Day because it was, I think, 30 bucks, And um, got the wife to play Overcooked with me. And we've been having a lot of fun with that game. The only issue with this game is that we're both perfectionists. And each level that you play, you could get a rating from one to three stars. Mm. And my wife is one of those is like, I refuse to move on to the next one until we get three stars. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I would suggest this game. It's probably one of the best couch co-op games that I've played. However, it starts off very tough. It does sort of have like an easier beginning mode, but it's pretty tough, especially if you're someone who is not used to playing with a controller. Like I said, my wife's a non-gamer, so she's having to figure all this out on her own. As sometimes I'm getting a little frustrated, I'll, I'll be honest, but you know I have to take that into consideration and think about that as she's playing the game. And of course, she's getting frustrated as well because I'm able to do things quicker than she is. And you know we're trying to get these three stars all the time. So it gets a high recommendation from me as long as you have a strong relationship with your loved one. <laughs> because... <laughs> because uh, it can create some tension. And, and my wife was like, this is so stressful. I've been working all day at a stressful job, and this is so stressful. <laughs> but but then she's like, let's play it again. We need three stars. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we'll play it to like maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, just kind of late for us uh, with our jobs. But, uh, but yeah, Overcooked, a lot of fun. It's a kitchen game where you're like chopping up and cooking. And some of the boards, like there's an earthquake. So the, like part of the room will rise while the other stays low and you can't get the certain stuff. So you have to spread apart. There's like food trucks that are like driving down the road and one of you has to be on one side and one on the other and they'll come together at some point. It's chaos, uh, but it, it's such a good game and uh, a wonderful couch co-op game. One of the other games that I have been playing, my kids, I don't know, you heard them in my room when we started the call, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I picked up the Gauntlet Cab recently, I had them playing some Gauntlet 4 on Sega Genesis. Gauntlet 4 is the only game in the Gauntlet series released a home console where you have the original Gauntlet game where you can actually play four players. Cool. I mentioned the Gauntlet cabinet I got. I got it really cheap, but it's a project. It doesn't even have a monitor in it. So I'm, I'm trying to get a CRT for it now, which is kind of a tough process. But, I, you know, being in sort of the, the pinball world, I know a lot of, um, you know, uh, arcade people as well. So... I'm on a line to maybe get one, so we'll see. But anyway, I brought them into my game room tonight and played some Gauntlet 4 with them, and they were just having a blast. And as I was setting up my mic for the show tonight, I actually set it up to record just to get some sounds from them playing this game. It just reminded me a lot of old times playing with cousins and just seeing my kids getting so excited about playing that game was uh, really awesome and uh, brought a lot of joy to me as a father you know, watching them getting so pumped about that. I think my daughter at one point said, like, this is the best time I've ever had with you, Towns. That's my son's name. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really cool, you know, to hear that because sometimes when we pick them up the school, they beat the hell out of each other in the backseat. So. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just at that age. They're good kids, though. But um, the other thing I've been playing, and you may know this from me talking about my pickup, is Metroid 2. 
I was going to pick up my first arcade cab last Friday night. My neighbor was going with me to pick it up because he's the arcade guy. He knows everything about them. And as I walked out of the house, I had just opened my package where I'd pre-ordered Metroid 2 off of Amazon. And I walked out to his car and I still had it in my hand because I wanted to open it up, you know, and look inside of it and everything because I was so excited to have it. And he's like, oh man, is that Metroid 2? I was like, yeah, I just got it today. He's like... I pre-ordered it too. It should be in my mailbox <laughs> as well. And uh, it was just a really cool moment where we've been sending each other texts, you know, sort of back and forth. I'm like, all right, 10 Metroids down, 12 Metroids down. And uh, I got to say, I'm, I'm really loving this game. If you're a fan of Super Metroid, you got to add this to your collection. It's such a good game. It reminds me of so much of Super Metroid. I've never played the Game Boy version of Metroid 2 because, um, as you may know, this is the sort of reboot, I guess you would call it, of Metroid 2 for the Game Boy mm-hmm. Return of Samus. And I've never played that one before, and I planned when I finish this to actually play that on my Super Game Boy and see how that goes. Uh, you know, kind of compare and contrast to. I can't do it because I've never played both games, but I can say for a fact that if you love Super Metroid, that this is one you should definitely pick up and check out. It's quite a challenge. It's got that fun backtracking feel that uh, Super Metroid does. And to me, it's not as daunting as the um, original Metroid game. As I've mentioned before, that was the first game that I ever had on my Nintendo when I got it. And you can imagine my struggles as a kid. Sure. But at the same time, it's a series that's very dear to my heart. But uh, yeah, that's what I've been playing. Tell me, <laughs> yes. What's your plan? <laughs> nice. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to trim my list down a little bit here because oh, we're oh, not. We got to get to our main topic. We're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're pretty, we're deep right now. Yeah, we're, we're an hour deep or more. We're getting there. So I'm going to go in little groups here because I got the <laughs> I got the Xbox One and of course I got a bunch of Xbox One games and I wanted to play them. So I played the launch title Rise Son of Rome. And I was surprised how much I liked it. It was not what I was expecting at all. It has, uh, you know, a not very deep like combat system, but it's pretty unique once you get used to it. And then the, you know, the voice acting and story are all very well done. So it was cool. It kept me engaged. It was a short game and I thought I was going to play it and say, oh yeah, man, this is definitely a freaking launch title. Like, you know, nice try, but no, it's, it's a decent game and definitely worth playing um i also played sunset overdrive which is another one of the well-known exclusives that came out around Mm -hmm. the time the system came out and i gotta say i didn't hate it but i didn't really love it um i am a huge fan of the saints row games and i also really like a bunch of other like superhero open world games like uh infamous or prototype i like this genre a lot But Sunset Overdrive, it was more about the movement and the verticality. This is a game that really does not want you to be on the ground, like, ever. So there's no vehicles, so your traversal is all double jumps and dashing and grinding is the main mechanic. So you're grinding all over everything like it's freaking Jet Set Radio or something. Or Mirror's Edge, is that the other game that's sort of like that as well? That's first person. It's less like parkour than Mirror's Edge and more, like I said, like a Tony Hawk or Jet Set Radio. Uh, grindy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you have an Xbox One, you've probably already played it. So it's not uh, not 
earth shattering news either way, but I did go through that game. So yeah, and then on the GPDXD, I went through a lot of uh, like emulated uh, arcade games, and I played through the uh, CPS2 titles, Alien vs. Predator and Battle Circuit. And the CPS2, for people who don't know, was some kind of Capcom proprietary arcade machine. And the fighting engine that was used in Alien vs. Predator, I feel, had to be the same one that was used in Battle Circuit because they feel like very much the same game, which was a ve- which is a good thing because they are awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also played Ninja Baseball Batman. Uh, <laughs> I've seen that one yeah, before, yeah. that one was really good. Um, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Um, and I played a bunch of Neo Geo games. Uh, Arrow Fighters 2 was one of the ones that stuck out to me as being mm-hmm. really, really fun and good. Um, and next, I, I kind of gave the PSP some love with games that I was playing. This this device also uh, emulates PSP to varying degrees of success, I'll be completely honest. But I played uh, Dead to Rights Reckoning, which is a really... a really stupid like so bad it's good action game and the name of the game is just gunning everybody down or having your dog kill people which is even better and i also played 007 from russia with love on the psp which i didn't realize is actually a straight an almost straight port of the ps2 and gamecube games which is uh the game that EA made, I apparently they were about to lose the license for James Bond, so they just made a game based on From Russia with Love. And the PSP game is a port, but they took out some of the driving missions. And that game was really fun, and uh, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. I just played it kind of on a complete whim, to be honest. So my last like group of games as I lead up to what I'm currently playing is the Ace Combat series. And uh, if anybody hasn't seen on the website yet, I'm embarking on writing a complete series retrospective of Ace Combat. And that's something that kind of stems from when I played Assault Horizon Legacy on the 3DS. I talked about that two episodes ago when, when Duke was on the show. It just kind of gripped me. I got hooked and I wanted to play another one and then another one. And then these games are really short, so you can just play one and then just hop right on to the next one. So I ended up playing Ace Combat 1 through 5 and then both PSP games. So that's where I'm at now. I'm taking a little break from it because I already published my first article and have my second article written and I don't want to get burnt out on it. So... Are you a fan of the Ace Combat games? I don't know if we've ever talked about that. I have not played the Ace Combat games. I may have a few in my collection, but I've never actually popped one in. Man, they are so good. I gotta recommend, like, if you have any of the PlayStation 1 ones, or if you have 4 on the PlayStation 2, or uh, 0 on the PlayStation 2... I wouldn't recommend five to just anybody, and I detail why in my upcoming article uh, the problems I had with Ace Combat 5. But anyway, it's one of those series that's been around forever, but it's not like a huge blockbuster big seller when the games come out, you know? It has a a very, very devoted following of fans, I'm finding out, which is very cool because they're mostly very nice people. So yeah, I... 
I've been playing that. And I also played a Ace Combat wannabe on the DS called Time Ace, which when you start playing Ace Combat games, you start learning about the Ace Combat clones, quote unquote, or just wannabes or games that were just like inspired by that. And Time Ace is this crazy game where you're <laughs> flying around and chasing a guy with a time machine. So you're going into outer space and then you're in World War II and then you're in Vietnam and then the gameplay is more uh, like Star Fox, actually, but uh, has a little bit more freedom and open world ishness to the levels. But you can beat this game in about two hours, much like a Star Fox game. The missions take two or three minutes each to complete. So that was a game I had never heard of, but I just managed to play through very quickly on the DS. And I'll just wrap it up with what I'm playing currently. And uh, I was having such a good time with my DS that I wanted to play another DS game. So I started uh, Super Princess Peach, which is, uh, yeah, it's a cool little platformer where you actually play as Princess Peach. Of course, that's a game for me, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) no. I've heard good things. It's easy. You know, it's a very gentle, easy game. So uh, I'm enjoying it. It's very pleasant. But the other thing, too, is I made a decision to just devote myself 100% to Persona 5 in the goal of finishing it, not as soon as possible in a way that I'm rushing through it, but I keep Uh picking it up, playing it for a week and putting it down and not playing it for three weeks and then playing it and just checking in and trying to remember what I was doing and it doesn't grab my interest, so blah 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 i've been in this like cycle since it came out way back in march or whenever it was so i'm i've probably put 20 or 30 hours into the game in the past week just really trying to push and trying to accomplish all of the things within the game that i wanted to do i maxed out all my personality stats which was something you know it's something you want to do in the game so i got all those done I got the one last relationship I wanted to max out. There's a particular character that I wanted to pursue the romantic relationship with. I know that I'm at the like the end of the calendar, near the end of the game, so I'm finally going to be able to wrap that up and either play a bunch of really short console games or dive into some other big-ass, long, super-long game like Yakuza 0 or I don't know. But yeah... That's what I've been playing. since the both of us got ps4s and i'm gonna say before we got ps4s but this was written in the stars 
for a very (laughs) long time. And it was one of those games that we knew we would play eventually. And that would be The Last Guardian. And for those who are not familiar, we have played Eco and we have played Shadow of the Colossus to mostly good results. And we're huge fans of the franchise. And uh, we knew this had to be a game that we would play to complete the trilogy. And just just a few nuts and bolts things here. I'd like to refer to these games as the Eco Trilogy. I don't think that's like a common way to, to refer to them, but I kind of like it. And if you're okay with that, I'd like to do that. And also, technically, the team that developed The Last Guardian is not known as Team Eco, but I'm just going to call them Team Eco because that's what they are. There's something else in name only, but for the ease of conversation, I think we should just call them Team Eco. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what most gamers know them by. Right. And, you know, that's that's how they started out. And uh, it just makes it easier for all of us if we <laughs> talk about them in that way. Cool. Okay, so... Our participants this month, besides you and me, of course, Dougley007, who never misses a playthrough, and we love him for that, Addicted, Disposed Hero, and Crabmaster2000. Now, Crabby didn't play the game for the playthrough, per se, but he played it recently enough that he was able to really put some, as usual, very valuable commentary on the thread. Mm -hmm. And... uh, as for uh, Steven, Disposed Hero, he finished the game merely minutes ago as we're recording this. <laughs> so that's pretty cool, man. He had some struggles with it, which we're going to talk about. Uh, I could very much relate to his struggles. So it's kind of cool that uh, he just posted that he got through it and he has a more positive feeling walking away from the game than he did maybe coming into it. So that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, So the game was released at the end of 2016 on December 6th in Japan and North America and in Europe on the following day. Now, Rich, we usually don't do this, but because this game has such a crazy, it's not a crazy development history, it's just a long drawn out history. I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs of the Wikipedia because for me to try and summarize that or reword it, It's just a list of delays, so uh, here we go. Team Eco began developing the game in 2007. Designed and directed by Fumito Ueda, it shares the stylistic, thematic, and gameplay elements from the previous titles Eco and Shadow of the Colossus. He employed the design through subtraction approach he used in the previous games, removing elements that did not contribute to the core theme of the connection between the boy and Trico, who we will talk about. Those are your two main characters. We've also discussed this design through subtraction thing heavily in the Eco episode, especially, uh, and was also talked about on the Shadow of the Colossus episode, which I was not on, but I've played that game and I'm a huge fan of it. So moving on, as for the development of the game, Sony announced The Last Guardian at the 2009 Electronic Entertainment (laughs) Expo, better known as E3, with a planned release in 2011 for the PlayStation 3. It suffered numerous delays, Ueda and Team Eco members leaving Sony, hardware difficulties causing the game to be moved to the PlayStation 4 in 2012, 
and this drew speculation that the game would not be released at all to many of us rich i mean (laughs) (laughs) i was heartbroken man when i heard that we said it so many times on the air like it was very sad thinking about this game being canceled and especially after seeing those trailers i mean even back then the early gameplay footage looked very breathtaking Yeah, I mean, well, think about that. I mean, I guess kind of growing up with Atari and things like that, there might have been a mention like in a like an Atari magazine or a Nintendo Power of a game that we saw that maybe never came out. But we're talking about something that had been delayed for release since 2011 getting stretched out that we all knew about. All the fans are, you know, really, really excited about. So that's that's extremely different. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening is Ueda and his team which is called Gen Design, but like I said, let's just for the sake of ease call them Team Eco still. Yeah, because that's a terrible right. name. <laughs> yes, it's more like generic <laughs> name is because they couldn't come up with something. <laughs> um, but it's just Ueda and former Team Eco members uh, as creative consultants. So the, the developer is technically them and uh sony's japan studio from the technical aspects last guardian was reintroduced at e3 2015 where it apparently stayed on schedule i I don't remember there might have been minor delays after that but it was announced that it was coming it was real and you know most of us had a i'll believe it when i see it kind of attitude but uh you know, it definitely, I remember it having new life breathed into it at that point. And then again, it was eventually released December of last year, 2016. So, I mean, we can't talk about this game without talking about this crazy, precarious, tenuous state that the game was in in development mm-hmm. for so long. And I posted on the thread that this is the thing in gaming in my life that makes me the most grateful is that this game actually exists and came out. I don't care if the game was horrible, which it's not. It's not a perfect game. It's not, you know, that's what the podcast is for. We'll tell you all about it. But just the fact that this game made it, it's almost like some guy running a marathon and is, you know, halfway through his leg falls off and then, you know, a bird flies in his face and his eyes fall out and, you know, it's like, how is this how is this guy ever going to cross the finish line? And then eventually, yeah. he, j- it, you know, finally, this guy just like collapses over the finish line. And that's the way I felt about like The Last Guardian has actually been released. Like we live in the universe where The Last Guardian gets released. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I, I find myself being extremely grateful for that because we see so many games that have the potential to be amazing just get canceled or lost in development hell forever um so to me as a as a fan of eco and shadow i was very grateful for that just on the face of it just before even playing the game you know what i mean i I wondered do, do you feel the same way yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I was excited about this pick, excited to really get my hands into this game and just waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. I've recently purchased a PS4, but I remember when it came out and people were like, are you not just dying to see this game now? And at that point, I was sort of just like, I don't know. I had this strange feeling of, yeah, I guess. You know, it had been drug out so long. I don't know how to describe the way I felt. 
you know, I, I wanted to play it. I was happy that it came out, but at the same time, I didn't rush to the store to purchase a copy. And I didn't have a PS4 at the time, so maybe that's a little of it. But I wasn't as excited as I wanted to be about this game when it came out. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. I think you can get exhausted of waiting for something. Yeah. And once it's out, it's out. It can't. They can't take it back and have it not be out. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so then you know the wait is over, and then you're in control of when you play the game. So I totally understand that you wait forever and then it's finally out and you say, okay, well, I can do this at my own pace now. I, I'm secure in the fact of knowing that the game is out and I can play it whenever I want. So I feel you. Yeah, and it was precarious there because I don't know anything about Fumito Ueda, but you hear these rumors and stuff about him sort of being sort of a prima donna, him having problems with Sony. But at the same time, if you've played Shadow of the Colossus and you've played Eco, this guy makes beautiful, just incredible games. I mean, those two games are, there's something about them that's just so different from anything you've ever played. You know, they're very artistic and beautiful. Someone like that, I mean, you almost feel like should be able to do whatever the hell they want. You know what I For mean? For sure. I mean, yeah. And so you think about that, but then you think about, you know, a big company like Sony and then putting limits on it and time constraints and things like that. And if you're an artist, those things are kind of pushed aside. You know, you're going to kind of be like, I'm going to do what I want. This is going to be the game that I want to design. And that's what I'm going to put out. You know, so at a certain point, I have that attitude of, you know what, I understand, you know, I'm not an artist, (laughs) but I understand that perspective of creating something that's yours you know i have created other things and you know and in my lifetime they're kind of like your kids you know those are a strict representation of you yeah and so you're very protective of those things and so a part of me doesn't blame him for being the way he is but at the same time i understand that there's a business model and there's time constraints and, and things that need to be done as far as the business side of it and as far as the money that's being put into these things my understanding of this is those things kind of combine to kind of create this big rift. And I don't know. You may know a little more about that history. Well, I don't I don't think I necessarily do, but I will say you're making me think of uh, Hideo Kojima and Metal Gear Solid Five. Very similar situation, right. very different outcome. We still got Metal Gear Solid Five and it's still an amazing game, but he would have been developing that game forever if Konami hadn't just said like, look, we're shipping the game, you know? So say what you will yeah. about Konami, say what you will about Kojima. They shipped a game that wasn't done. It's literally documented that they had more of the game that they wanted to add on, uh, you know, levels and mm-hmm. scenarios and cutscenes and everything that are out there. So it's good to know that if Ueda had some kind of strife with Sony or scheduling problems, and I, from what I understand, like, I'm going to come off as a Sony fanboy because I kind of am one. But from what I understand, they're really good at working with developers. You know, they're a good platform yeah. to work on from that perspective. And especially Mark Cerny, I get the impression that he was, you know, supportive of this project, which is a huge benefit. So, yeah. So I get what you're saying. I, I And I think, again, that just lends to my feeling of, man, thank God they ship this thing <laughs> like that's that's yeah, all i can say i know <laughs> so 
having spoken about the development history, I think we can move into the story here because it's very simple. And unlike the Wikipedia thing that I just read, uh, the story synopsis is a creation of yours truly. Uh, So I'm going to read that for you. (laughs) As quote unquote, the boy, that's our player character. And we, he doesn't have a name. So we'll refer to him as the boy is what he's referred to. As the boy, you wake up in a cave with a giant beast chained up next to you. You release the beast and work with him to traverse the environment, heading through some maze-like architecture towards a central tower. Along the way, you discover the beast, which you name Trico, is not the only one of his kind. There is a central force controlling the Tricos, who are required to obtain sacrifices to feed it. Um, and I don't mention here, but the sacrifices you discover are other children of your age. And that's partly mm. of why you're in the situation yeah. you're in. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> um, our Trico has broken the spell, so to speak, but can still be taken over at times by antennas controlled by the central power, which must be overcome. The boy and Trico must fight and traverse their way to defeat the central power while fending off the other Tricos being controlled by it. And also, I didn't mention here, but we're also fending off these iron soldier type of things that try to steal the boy and put him back in their barrel making machine, I guess. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel like they probably run off the same juice, right? I mean, they're... They have the uh, same uh, glowing color eyes. It's an odd moment when you discover what's in those barrels and what you've been feeding your Trico the entire time. I just remember thinking of uh, that Charlton Heston, Soylent Green. Yeah, Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's children, it's children. (laughs) Yeah, that was a crazy moment. So this game like eco and like shadow give you a very minimal impression of what is actually going on Mm -hmm. and i wonder what your first impression was here because you know i i was very excited to play this game i was willing to drink whatever kool-aid the game was going to give me like i'm on board with this you know what i mean so i'm already you know ready to go with whatever the game wants to give me but in the first scenario it really does a good job of just putting you in this room with this thing and you have to figure Mm -hmm. out what to do and my first impression was man i hope this game isn't very hard (laughs) because (laughs) i have to finish it to write up this playthrough so um yeah this is a a game where your first impressions can really be kind of nebulous and you know, at worst, very confusing. Even as a Shadow of the Colossus eco-veteran, uh, what did you think here? Well, I think from, you know, what we've seen with the previous two games is very appropriate. I mean, this is the MO, right? This is what's done. You're thrown into the middle of a story, which you, you know, you don't really have a clue what's going on. Right. I will say about this game, it ties up a lot more ends than the other two games did. Oh, yeah. Um, the other two kind of uh, leave things open for interpretation. This one, I think you get about, I would say, half or three quarters of the way through, and you kind of discover why you woke up in that room with that beast, mm-hmm. um, which it's kind of nice, but eh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we'll probably discuss some of that later, I know, because you and I have talked a little bit about this game in our text back and forth, but... Yeah, I really love the beginning of this game. I really love how it starts out. I love how even the 
the start and continue screen gives you a little bit of the story, whether you notice it or not. There's a piece of that story there. Yes. Just kind of give it away. It's the light shield that you get toward the beginning of the game, buried in some dirt. Um, one of the most fascinating impressions that I got from this game is that it's narrated. And that's something you get from the beginning, too. This narration, you immediately recognize it's the boy that's narrating. You know, it's a story being told or retold. And you realize that it's an older voice. It sounds older, deeper. You know, it's mm-hmm. not a child's voice. So you know from the beginning that this is an event that you at least are going to survive, uh, which I thought was an interesting choice, but one I really, really liked about the game. Not only does the narrator help with the story, but at times he helps you kind of figure out what to do next. If you take too long in certain areas, it'll give you a little bit of direction, which I thought was nice. It's a nice little tutorial there in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. I I think this game has way more context uh, minute to minute than the previous two games did, for sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's almost a progression, right? Like Eco had very little, Shadow had more, and it had a, even at the end there was this long cutscene. And but it's it, like you said, very open to interpretation. What happens there? Mm-hmm. But yeah, Last Guardian is pretty. I don't want to say standard, but you get a story, a narrative that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's wrapped up at the end, and it has a resolution. So. That is kind of different from the previous games. I thought something else was kind of neat in playing this game is that when you start it, you know, at least for me, I felt like I was back in that Team Eco-created world. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. Even though we're jumping from PS2 all the way up to PS4 graphically, I still felt that I was back in that same world with these characters. Uh, the shrouding on the um, the boy the oranges and the, you know, the grays reminded me a lot of uh, Eco. And so you feel like you're back in this same world that's just been created by this team. And that is a very comforting and cool and uh, mystical feeling. I I always feel like that I'm kind of swept away when I play these games. Awesome. I, I agree completely. And I, you know, I'd like to think they're all in the same universe for sure. Um, Yeah, so I guess we can move on to the gameplay here. Fans of both Eco and Shadow of the Colossus will probably find things to like here because it's kind of, to me at least, uh, the best of both of those games where you have a companion character kind of like Yorda in the first game, uh, but this time (laughs) the companion is protecting you most of the time instead of the other way around, which is kind of awesome. Yeah. It's not someone you're just dragging around. It's a um, a willing participant in right. your journey out of this place. Yeah. So the gameplay is mostly, you know, it is a third-person 3D action game that is mostly like uh, Eco or Shadow, except you don't have a sword-like weapon. You do have a shield that shoots a beam of light that was inspired by uh, Shadow of the Colossus's beam that shot out of the sword that you could use as like a navigation um so they kind of incorporated that into the only weapon and the only item that you use in the entire game and that tells trico where to shoot somehow he can shoot electricity charges like 
like Raiden from Mortal Kombat out of his tail. And that can destroy obstacles. You can defeat enemies with that. And that is your only kind of means of controlling your own quote-unquote combat. And the boy does move around uh, in weird ways, which we'll talk about. But you can also climb Trico, and then you have to use Trico to kind of solve environmental puzzles. You have to take care of Trico. When he gets hurt, you have to console him. When he flies into a rage, you have to calm him down. And uh, one of the more visceral parts of the game is if he gets a spear stuck in him, you have to pull it out. And yeah. uh, that's a pretty amazing gameplay element. So I don't want to just list what you can do here. I realize that's what I'm doing here. So the game is you, you control only the boy. Like your player input controls into the controller control the boy. That's the player character. And just real quick, like I found his controlling to be perfectly adequate. A lot of people complain that he either runs super fast or you can actually press a button to make him sneak or walk slow. He doesn't have like a normal walking speed. The trade-off there, though, is unlike Eco and Shadow, you really can't fall off of anything. The game doesn't let you fall off of high ledges. He just does this kind of like, whoa, get my balance like kind of motion. You can never just walk off of a ledge. Yeah, you can if you push the wrong button. Oh, you can you can <laughs> jump clear off of a ledge if you want to or yeah, if yeah, you do yeah. accidentally. But just by using your thumbstick, you can't move. So that's... That's your player input gameplay element. And the other the other half of that, the other major gameplay element is Trico. The game is basically that Trico is your pet, for lack of a better word. He's your companion. And you have to learn to interact with him to get him to do the things you need him to do and to cooperate with him to move through the game, through the environments, through heights that you can't jump to without him, to lows that you might climb down on his tail, for example, uh, that you wouldn't want to just jump straight down. There's so many ways that you can use him, and that is the gameplay loop. We can get more technical into that, but I just wanted to clarify because there's things like oh, you have to feed Trico, but it, it's not a Tamagotchi. There's not a menu where you open and you say, give Trico a hot dog, you know. It's you. You have to look around the environment for these barrels, and you have to pick them up and carry them to him and have him eat them. Yeah. That's how you, quote-unquote, feed Trico. So I just I think we should make that very clear, uh, what the actual gameplay is there, you know. Yeah, and you get that a little bit from the narrator. He's going to kind of narrate, and uh, you know, when Trico gets down and hungry, he kind of lets you know, Trico, Trico, I could tell was getting hungry, right. or you know, he didn't want to <laughs> move, or you know, there, there's some indicator to let you know that you're you're going to be looking for barrels, going to uh, be doing this seek and find portion of the game, which you know, I, I never felt was annoying or too hard to figure out. No, and I. I don't know if this is true, but I just felt that anytime I found the barrels, I just grabbed them and fed them to him. And I think that maybe mm -hmm. prevents him from just shutting down and making you feed him. I'm not sure, but I got to surmise that that helps if you just feed him all the time anyway. Yeah, but I think there's portions of the game where it does make you go and seek these things. You have to go out and find those. Um, 
one that I'm specifically thinking about is the mine carts. In that area right there, there's a few places where you have to find a few of the barrels and, and bring those back to him for him to eat and for him to continue on. And he kind of like sits down and sort of collapses before that starts. And I think there's another part like after the uh, the tree scene that I think Addicted was talking about where you have to you kind of do that. So I do think those are sort of built into the game. Mm-hmm. But like you said, anytime you find barrels along the way, you're definitely going to want to feed him as much as you can. For sure. Like I said, there's truly no combat in this game from your perspective. The best that you can do is either knock over these soldiers that I mentioned, and that is mm-hmm. extremely tricky to do from my perspective <laughs> and, and you know my experience. Or you can also use the shield zapper to hit them. But I've, I rarely did that except for towards the end of the game where these scenarios set up that you kind of have to do that. But uh, yeah, like I said, there's no combat. It's mostly avoidance. It's a little bit of stealth. But the other part of that is if you can get Trico into the area where those like iron soldiers are, he will just tear them to shreds which is just a sight to behold and it really helps kind of form the bond between you as the player and this thing that is gonna protect you you know uh i thought that was really cool and i found myself we talked about you know yelling at the tv and cheering and all this other stuff and the (laughs) the the scenarios that made me cheer the most was when trico came in and laid the smackdown on these things that were trying to chase me and it's like you know, one of those scenes in a movie where the bully is bullying some weak kid, but then a bigger bully comes and kicks his ass. You know <laughs> what I mean? It, it just makes you get up and cheer. Yeah, I have to uh, I have to mention something really quick and tell a short story. I'll make it brief. But I played this game around my family. My wife and my two oldest kids watched. And they really, really enjoyed watching this game. Because it, it is so beautiful. And it is about the relationship between a boy and basically his pet we have pets sean i know that you have Mm -hmm. pets that we're all really really attached to and it's hard to say that you can't see your pet in this being that has been created but just to bring back your point so i'm playing this game and uh my daughter's away at another kid's house and my wife and i are on the couch and i'm playing it and they're watching and it's the scene where the other Trico attacks your Trico. Oh, man. And you, you have to, like, help him out and fight him. And my son is getting really, really upset about this, of course. And I just hear him scream out, Get off him, you asshole!" <laughs> and <laughs> my wife and I, this is a six-year-old. And I'm like, well, at least you use it in the correct context, right? <laughs> but... I mean, I had to turn my head and not laugh. I mean, I definitely had to pause the game and, you know, have a talk with my child about the use of that word. But, I mean, it's so appropriate. I was thinking the same thing, right? I mean, that was going through my mind as well. And if my child wasn't there, I would have probably maybe even expressed some of the same sentiment. You get so wrapped up in these characters, you know, and and it has a lot to do with parts of the gameplay. So I I did have to mention that story really quick. No, that's awesome. And I think... I even prompted my wife, you know, the first time I saw the scene where you discover that there's another Trico who still has his helmet mm-hmm. on. Granted, I, I I, just so everyone knows, I went into this game completely dark on any plot details or whatever. So, so I didn't I. know there were other Tricos in this world. 
when I saw him, I was like, oh, my God. Like, literally yeah. screaming. And my wife from the other room was like, what? What? Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even the title of the game kind of throws you off, right? Yeah. The Last Guardian. <laughs> so you think, like, he is, you know, the Last Guardian. Right, exactly. So there's these, like, man, just so many shocking moments. And, yeah, I mean, if you don't have a response when the two of them are fighting at the end or even at the very end where it's getting really bad, and we'll get into that, but, man, I mean, you might have had a really bad time with Trico's AI if that doesn't affect you. So (laughs) so we'll get into that. Well, before we do, I wanted to read a quick uh, quote from uh, Crab Master. Oh, yes. He posted yeah. something that kind of goes with this. He said, when I was playing, my family would occasionally watch, and much like Rich's, they would get really into it. Lots of tense moments when a guardian grabbed me or when I was forced to take a leap of faith and hope Trico would assist me. Even remember catching my wife grimacing in empathetic pain when pulling spears out of Trico. And the whole room, myself included, would occasionally tense up when making certain leaps because of the feeling of height. So yeah, I mean, it's a very, very intense game. And for someone like me and my wife, I mean, we're very uh, acrophobic. We hate heights. Mm. And so there were moments in this game where I would have to jump and I could just feel my like heart like drop down into my stomach. It was pretty incredible. I mean, for a game to make you feel that way, you know? Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, one of the things I have in the notes here is that this game really plays into a lot of our primal fears that we have as as human beings. And the three major ones that I noted are the fear of heights, the fear of tight spaces and the fear of drowning in water. Sure. I wouldn't quite consider myself somebody who is afraid of heights, but this game takes you to dizzying heights that no human being Mm -hmm. like. Philippe Petit, maybe, you know, the guy who walked on the tightrope between the Twin Towers. Men on Wire, great documentary. (laughs) Um, Like, it makes that look like a playground balance beam. Not only that, but it takes you to these extremely tight spaces. I mean, there was a part in those mine shafts where I was almost lost for a couple minutes because I thought, okay, Trico can't fit in here. And then, you know, I'm just goofing around trying to figure something else out and uh the narrator says i didn't think he could make it through but it look you know he tried eventually and then it's like oh no he's gonna come in here <laughs> you know like and that makes me really like oh yeah i think claustrophobia is one of my kind of fears you know the the scene in aliens where bishop goes through the duct and they seal him in and he's yeah. just shimmying through the duct and it's like even though it's supposed to be an android that's like the scariest scene in any movie that i've ever seen in my life is just him shimmying through that like you know one foot diameter duct it's oh god <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I could never be a caver. I have a friend whose wife's a caver. No yeah. way. I saw the movie The Descent. And oh, got yeah. Really freaked yeah, out. Yeah, we've about talked that. about yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> the other thing, too, is it's very minimal, but there are some scenes where it's like, yo, if this was in real life underwater, you don't know how far you have to go. That would be scary as hell. Even in the game context, mm. it's so scary to think, oh, man, like. The death consequence in this game is very minimal. Like like I said, you have to try hard to kind of jump off of something to kill yourself. Or if you get captured, it's kind of this dreamy sequence where you just have to mash the buttons and you're just reset to a checkpoint. 
but the underwater sequences felt so dangerous to me that it's like, oh my God, Trico, just swim, baby, swim, get get us out of here, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because technically you're riding this beast who has no concept of how long you can hold your breath. He's just trying to, you know, help you get out of the situation. I definitely know the one scene that you're talking about with the lakes where um, you just get really tense and you see your body float to the top and it's just a horrifying experience and your kids are right there beside you like, is he dead? Is he dead? Is he dead? You're like... (laughs) Well, I hope not, because I can't figure out any other way to get out of this, <laughs> right. get out of this place. Hopefully he's going to wake up soon. And there's there's, there's a few moments like that. I mean, there's a cave-in, um, yeah. you know, and you're not only concerned for the boy, but you're, you're really concerned for Trico in this game. It really does a good job of, like, tugging at your heartstrings, I tell you. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and like I said, just the feeling of danger is so real because of how they play on very real human basic fears which i think is amazing Mm though in the gameplay department this game is very unconventional even for people who have played eco and shadow the controls are familiar enough to us as fans but still different and they still take a lot of getting used to so i i really feel for the people who criticize the game on a gameplay standpoint if you're not used to this kind of thing especially like there are things that I just can't argue with, you know? It can be very difficult to get onto and off of Trico sometimes. The boy, like I said, he either runs super fast or just kind of walks very slowly. And there's a lot of camera issues. And I'm going to tell you, the only feedback we got on Twitter for this game was from our friend Steven Eider, who mentioned a couple times that you know the biggest frustration in the game for him was camera control i think he said oh camera controls the game my response to that is that's fair but it's a game with a gigantic ai non-player character so the game has to take into account the boy's point of view but also it has to direct the camera in these tight spaces to make you aware of what trico is doing So Mm -hmm. I kind of sympathize with the developers here and I mentioned it on the forum. I talked about the same thing when I played Attack on Titan and reviewed it for the site. I think this is a problem that has yet to be solved. I mean, if somebody can show me a game, I mean, maybe Colossus did it better and I'm not remembering it well, but I, you know, I think the same kind of things happened back then where 
if you have this massive non-player character and you have to direct the player's attention through the player character, it's not going to always be easy to get the right camera angles. So I feel you there, but I just don't know if that's been solved yet with the technology that we have in game development. Yeah, and another point I want to bring up about that is that the moments that I had problems like with the camera sort of being blurred out or you know, just sort of issues kind of figuring out where I was on Trico or what have you. It was never in like a tense moment where I was being attacked or I was in danger. And I've always felt like as long as I was patient and just kind of figured out, okay, well, I need to get off Trico, which I can easily do. I never had any problems with that like some people did. I mean, I can't remember what it was, if it was O or X and hold down um you know you just kind of easily let your grip go and get off and just move him a little bit Mm. and you know and just just readjust your positioning but again like i said there are no moments in the game where i was ever in danger from enemies where i felt that the camera was ever an issue so for me it was just a matter of patience you know and with this game i feel like you have to have some patience you gotta be very very patient yes and another one of the complaints is about trico and moving trico and i guess that's something we could probably get into now and you know getting him to really control the way you wanted him to i don't remember who brought it up on our thread first It wasn't me for sure. It might have been you or some of our other participants, but it's a little frustrating. He doesn't want to do exactly what you want him to do, that you have to control him. At one point in the game, it tells you, okay, this is how you control him, and if you're closer to his head, you can control him better. It actually says some parts of his body make him listen to you better, whether you're trying to pet him and calm him Mm -hmm. down or whether you're trying to get him to do what you want him to do, like jump or run across something. You're going to do better if you're around his head, like around his neck, putting in your actions. And I believe it was holding down R1 and, you know, you can hold down R1 and like hit the jump button to like tell him, hey, you need to jump here or whatever. Honestly, man, I, I never had a lot of problems with that stuff. It always seemed to like kind of work out. He would always kind of go, you know, where he wanted to. And and again, kind of come back. I I don't know who said it, but they said it's like a real pet. It's like your real damn dog or (laughs) cat, you know, it doesn't want to listen. I mean, that's the beauty of it. If it did everything you wanted it to do, it would be boring, in my opinion. I mean, there, there has to be a little bit of opposition in this game. And I think developers nailed it. It felt like a real pet. It was amazing. Yes. I think I was the one who's writing in the in the opening post about, you know, you have to realize that this is an AI designed to act like an animal. And for the most part, it actually does. And we're not talking about a one to one input, you know, like this isn't a driving game where you press R1 to press the gas and that makes the car go. It's not a direct input kind of thing. You're communicating with this AI that it's not going to do what you want it to do every time. And I'm happy for people like you who have a, a completely smooth playthrough. I think I was somewhere in between because there are some people who are just frustrated and I would say wrongly think that Trico's AI is just messed up and they, you know, the developers didn't succeed in anything kind of thing, just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think those people are maybe kind of missing the point. But for me, I did see sometimes where it's like, okay, Trico's obviously 
his AI is in some kind of loop that it shouldn't be in. And he is not ever going to come back to where I need him to come back. And I'm just, this is a lost cause. And that's where I put in the thread, just reset to the checkpoint and it resets both Trico and the boy. You're usually facing in the direction you need to go to. And if you just relax and move the camera around a little, wait for Trico to do something, that's how you'll find out what you need to do next. Yeah. It's funny. I had one of these moments um, when you finally get him to fly again. You know, you have to pull down those two draw bridges and make that really long runway. Well, I had gotten to the other side after making the first draw bridge drop. And and I was like, why will he not jump? Why will he not try to fly? Why will he not do that? And I started thinking about it. I was like, well, maybe it's me. Maybe I need to do something. You know, and I probably spent 30 minutes on this, you know, and. I was like, I can't understand why he will not do anything. I I never looked at a guide or anything, but I thought, well, let me walk around a little bit, look around. And sure enough, you know, I found some ledges and I worked my way back up to the top of that second tower. And I thought, oh, that's right. I need to create a really long runway Mm -hmm. for this guy, you know, to make this epic leap because that's what it is. And it totally made sense and uh, really fit with the game and made me reevaluate what I was doing and made me think. And I like that about a game. You know, when he's not being obedient, a lot of times it's because you need to do something correctly or, you you know, you need to do something else. And so, yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of issues. Now, I did have some, but at the same time, I mean, I think you said, man, you're really flying through this game. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I felt very relaxed in playing this game. I felt like I was taking my time. I wasn't trying to rush through the game. I just, I don't know, I somehow felt some sort of connection, which was kind of odd. <laughs> but but I did. I, I didn't get stuck in this game, except for one part. And, you know, we can talk about that later. But yeah. uh, I did just want to read a few comments from Threads, if I yes. may. Addicted said, I think Trico's scripting is well done, and he behaves similar to a dog or a cat. I did run into a scripting issues, but they didn't make me feel disconnected from the experience. A dog, and especially a cat, doesn't always do what you wanted, and I expected the same from Trico. I felt connected to Trico and would always spend time healing Trico after a battle. The cry Trico makes as you remove the spears also tugged at me and helped me make the bird, cat, dog a believable character. Now, bird, cat, dog refers to he's sort of a combination of different animals. He's he's kind of funky looking, but uh, I, I think it's a really nice design. Yeah. Our buddy Steven, Disposed Hero, said, Trico's design, mannerisms, and reactions all feel very genuine. As someone who has owned cats all of my life, I feel like I can sense what Trico is thinking just by observing his reactions to what's going on around him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it feels really natural and intuitive having this pet. He makes noises. You can tell when he's upset. You can tell when he's worried about certain things. You know, you can tell when he's ready to move or, you know, make certain actions in the game. I'll kick it over to you, but I thought it was just really well done. Yeah, for sure. And I think, again, you either kind of buy into this or you don't. And the game becomes very polarizing because of that. Like I said, some people just on the face of that are not going to like that. And that's fine. But one thing I do kind of take issue with is when people conflate the AI problems with the game design in a way that they say... Well, the game designers say that the animal is designed to not follow your directions at all time, but really it's just that he can't because the AI is bad. To me, that that's just not it. That's not true at all. Like, why would they make a game like that, you know? The people who are saying that obviously don't understand Team Eco. They don't understand Fumito Ueda, you know? So... 
Now, if you're going to say, look, I played the game, Trico, I couldn't even get him anywhere near where I needed him to go. Like, I believe you. Like, I, I've, I saw it happen in my playthrough, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But to say, like, oh, they're, they're just covering up their bad AI design by saying that that's the way it's supposed to be. Like, no, that's, that's not what's going on here, buddy. I no. So. I mean, we can talk about some of the frustrations in the game because... And now I'm talking about specific parts here because that's where we got the most feedback. I think the parts where you get stuck in this game can really stick out like a sore thumb, even though I would say, and I think you've kind of alluded to it, that the objectives in this game are not hard at all. They're so very simple. I just kept telling myself, just relax, just slow down, just just stop, just stop running around and look around for a second yeah. slowly and see what's around you and see what's going on because it's normally just pulling one lever or crawling under finding something or finding that one ledge that you can climb up on. Or crawling down his right. tail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, there's probably about five or six different things that it could be is, you know, we're kind of listing them right now mm-hmm. and you just, you kind of go through your checklist and you're going to figure it out. Exactly. But there are parts, and I'm going to list off my two big ones right now, which was the part we should mention. There's these stained glass sigils that are in the shape of eyes that are used to ward off the Tricos or guide them. It's kind of like a shock collar, really. Like they see them and they're just kind of fixated on them and they won't proceed forward. So one of the more satisfying aspects of the game to me was smashing them and pushing them off the ledges and listening to them smash <laughs> when they hit the bottom. Yeah. That was a pretty cool feeling. But then the iron soldiers can kind of use those as like a handheld shield to kind of fend off Trico. And there's this one sequence where there's a huge gap and you're on one side in a room full of the iron soldiers and tree goes on the other side of the gap and two of the soldiers are fending him off with these shields and what you really have to do is nothing you can get caught by one of the the guys and as he's carrying you away i guess trico kind of overcomes his fears and just dives into them yeah but but what i thought you had to do and what you can do because i i know this because i did it i finally succeeded is to run and you can do this kind of rolling bump move into these guys but it's so gentle and feeble when you do it you have to be running from a very far distance at top speed and hit the button at just the right time to knock into them hard enough to make them drop the shield this was probably the most frustrating part of the game for me was getting stuck here thinking that i had to knock them both over and doing it over and over and over and over again until i finally did it and got trico to jump over that gap yeah but i found out when you played through you did not have that problem i guess you had you provoked cheek chico (laughs) (laughs) chico and the man you provoked trico into just jumping over pretty easily i guess yeah, um, I know which part you're talking about. It's the one where you come in through the window, yeah. and there are a lot of those terracotta like soldiers that are coming after you. I kind of got lucky, and I stood in the windowsill for a minute and looked around before I jumped down, and I noticed that those terracotta soldiers were going to be coming. There's like a, a walkway that leads to the two guys that are holding those shields. 
But what you can do is you can go under that walkway through like a tunnel so you can escape those guys. When you get to the other side, of course, there's more terracotta warriors. But if you can get them all kind of chasing you and then go underneath again and then go up, you can sort of confuse them. And then you've only got the two guys holding the shield so you can take your time taking those guys out because they're worried about keeping Trico at bay so they're not worried about you. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? So So that's uh, like a third way to do it. (laughs) Right. Um, And something I didn't do in the game, but this is part of the gameplay. Did you know you can crawl up those guys' backs and pull their heads off? I did not know that. Wow. Yes, you can. I had no idea either, and I was doing some research on this game and read about it. So I imagine you could just crawl up those guys' backs, pull their heads off, and of course, you know, they would collapse and drop their eye shields anyway, so he would come on over. Wow, that's crazy. uh, Yeah. Well, the other... uh point of frustration with me was the end part where you find the central orb you're in this room there's no way out you because you fell in from a high ceiling so you're in a room with this orb you have your shield and the only thing you could do is point your shield at the orb to shrink it now i sat there and shrank the orb to nothing and then when you do that you let go and it just regenerates you can't run into it because it'll hurt you and knock you back Dude, I must have shrunk this orb to nothing and back a hundred times. Actually, this was one of the very few times I gave up and watched uh, a walkthrough video. Because what you have to do, and I, I don't know how I would have ever thought of this, or maybe you just did. What you do is you shrink it like halfway, and then you can climb on the yeah. orb itself. And it's just like, man, how was I supposed to realize that? <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm an idiot. I don't know. But like, yeah, you got your shield shrinks the orb, but you only have to shrink it like, you know, 33.4%, man. Like, (laughs) yeah, for me, it was just like you said, trial and error. Mostly, you know, of course, I was using the shield to shrink it all the way down, which is, you know, that's what you're going to do. I mean, it's the first thing you think of. And then when I tried to run and jump on there, I mean, it quickly grew back out at me. But like you said, if you only shrink it down to like almost it's shrunk Mm. down it will kind of grow back slower it was just a matter of trial and error for me but still i mean you know we're talking 20 plus times you know there so yeah it was frustrating not as frustrating for me as opening the dome though uh figuring out how to get that dome open and pulling that tail down oh yeah yeah and climbing down it i had to look at a walkthrough for that (sighs) i'm gonna admit that was really frustrating because there's not a lot of places in the game where you have to grab the tail and drag yeah. it, right? I mean, that's that not true. a huge portion of the game. So to think about that at that point in the game, it was a little daunting, a little difficult. So I did have to look up, you know, walk through for that. Um, and then the uh, probably the water puzzles uh, was the other portion of the game that gave me a lot of trouble. You know, when I actually found those levers to release there would be like some flotsam that would come up and I'm like, well, where did that come from? Like where do I go from right. here? And then luckily I just got on his back, like toward the middle of like one of the lakes and he just went underwater. So after I figured, after I figured the first one out, I figured the second puzzle was fairly similar except for the splashdown part, yeah. right? <laughs> which was pretty cool. I really liked that portion of the game. I thought that was really neat. Well, I got to mention too, Addicted uh, shouted out the part where you're hanging from the tree as one of his most yes, frustrating moments. And 
That was frustrating for me too. You know, I didn't have too much trouble there. I think that I just waited it out enough that it was like, you know, oh, hi, Trico. There you are, Trico. Let's come on. Let's do this. What do I got to do? Wiggle? Okay, let's wiggle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like (laughs) I think I just waited it out long enough that it didn't really get to me at all. But I could see that happening, you know. Yeah. Even the continues and getting away from the, we want to say like, uh, they're, the terracotta guys are always around these blue doors, which they're trying to drag mm-hmm. you to. Very similar to Eco, in my yes. opinion, with the uh, black pits. But uh, when they grab you, or they can fire these like symbols at you, these projectiles, they kind of put you in a daze, and you have to like press your buttons manically to get those things to go away and to get away from these guys. And even when you die... To come back into the game, you just have to button mash like crazy. It's the oddest thing, and I, I, I'm kind of curious why they why they put that in there. It's it's very very bizarre, yeah. but uh, you know it's that's just a part of the game, I guess. I, I don't want to call it like overly frustrating, but at the same time, it was a little head scratching for me, especially like trying to get away. Like, what am I supposed to be pushing? Does anything work? Or is there certain buttons that have to be hit? You know, there's really no indication of what you do when that happens. For sure. Um, Yeah, so we've already kind of covered uh, a lot of what I'm looking at here. But I mean, as as far as characters in the game, uh, we kind of covered this in the story. Uh, You really only have the boy and Trico. But later on in the game, as the story starts to unfold, there's one major cutscene that kind of is exposing what is going on as far as why you are where you are and why the Tricos are doing yep. what they're doing. Um, you find out in this cutscene that the Tricos are sent out by the central power to get children that go into this machine that turns them into this goo that goes in a barrel <laughs> that I guess the the central power feeds on that, but they also feed the Tricos with that. I guess yeah. that's part of a means of how they control them. Uh, but, you know, we do find out that the boy has a family, theoretically, and comes from a village of people. Well, I, I don't know. I would argue maybe he doesn't have a family. I've, I've never seen a family. I, we get that cutscene, and we get the Trico breaking into this home, which houses 20-something maybe more boys. You're right. It almost it looks like a dormitory kind of thing. Either that or an orphanage was kind of okay. what I got okay. from it. That was my thought. I mean, that was my feeling on it. And like you said, it could be like some sort of boys' dormitory or something like that in this town. But... Um, you kind of get that feeling, which gives you, you know, another like kind of cool emotional sense to the game because Trico himself, even though there are other Tricos, he is different, right? He's come to grab you and take you back to feed you to this machine, but along the way, something's happened and the power that they have over him. And because of that, they take him to uh, and chain him up, right? Basically to die. Mm-hmm. These creatures, these Tricos swallow the boys and they get surrounded by this sort of goo, you know, if you will, and they just kind of slide out of their mouths and that's what's happened to you. You've kind of slid out of his mouth and possibly them not knowing that you were there, right. you know, that he had captured you. And then you form this bond with this creature and that's that's how it kind of works. But this, this whole idea that possibly he is an orphan, that this Trico now itself is being sentenced to basically starve to death 
and as an orphan as well, you know, kind of firms up this bond between the two, I think. And I think it's a really nice touch to the game. Very good. I want to get back into graphics and the presentation of this game. Now, I I already talked about the uh, camera technical issues, but let's talk about the good stuff here. I mean, like you said, Rich, the art style is very much inspired by Eco and Shadow. And I'll tell you, to this day on my PlayStation 3, the wallpaper on my PlayStation 3 is the one that came with the Eco Shadow collection, which is the garden at the end of Shadow of the Colossus. That's been my PlayStation 3 wallpaper theme for you know, six or seven years or whatever, and I'll probably never change it. Um, so I have a real love for the this architecture and this world, and it's very much here. But the other element that's in the game that's kind of amazing is Trico himself. He's this feathered creature that's like mostly cat, but has bird legs and feathers and horns eventually and this big long tail. So I got to say, graphically, I think you would never know this game was moved from a PS3 to a PS4 in the middle of development because I feel like the art style is very distinctive and simple. Even like the art style on the boy, it's very it's more detailed than Journey. But like what we were talking about last month with how simple and with solid colors and you know, the boy is just wearing this like kind of tunic and it's very timeless and his face is just kind of cartoony. So you don't have to worry about Uncanny Valley or this game aging poorly. Uh, So I think the graphical presentation of everything is pretty well done. I mean, sure, there's, you know, some low res textures around the game or whatever, if you look close enough, but I think this game holds up holds up is not a good term because it was released you know eight months ago but (laughs) but i think this game will hold up well is what i'm trying to say i think yeah i think it has a art style on its own it very much makes me think of like a watercolor painting in the way the colors are kind of soft and they kind of drag Mm -hmm. a bit does that make sense and it's just timeless. I mean, it's just so beautiful. It's not like these crystal clear, like super hyper realistic characters or even environments, though I would say the environments look extremely good and are just incredible. But it's just something that's a beauty to behold. And, and like Shadow of the Colossus, it really stands out from other games that are on the system. Do you yes, know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, just just the art style, and that's what's going to give it that longevity. Um, as far as not, you know, ever seemingly feel dated. Now, who knows? I mean, we may change our mind about that down the road. We can't predict something like that, but I, I see this game aging well. Now, I wonder what you think about the next thing I have here, which was the tooltip pop-ups that you cannot disable them, and they are. Really kind of, in some people's opinion, including mine, overused. And from what I understand, they were even patched to be not so prevalent, but I still think there's way too many of them late into the game. Like the barrels, right? So you might pick Mm -hmm. up a barrel in the beginning of the game, and yeah, maybe you won't see another one for two hours, and you think, oh, wait, how do I pick this up? But like 
you know, when you're at the end of the game, you should know how to pick up a barrel. And I don't think you should need that pop-up tool tip anymore. And for a game that doesn't have any UI or a HUD or anything, and then even the menus themselves when you pause the game are super minimal. I don't want to make too big of a deal out of it, but this is another major complaint that people had about the game that I can kind of relate to. I wonder, how did you feel about that? You know, I I didn't have a problem with it at all. And maybe my game being just loaded was pretty well patched and uh, didn't see a lot of those tooltips. And the other thing that they do that I like is it's very sort of insignificant up in the upper right-hand corner. It's very small. Sometimes even on my 42-inch TV, I still couldn't always like make out what what they were trying to tell me to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so it is very minimalistic. So to me, it didn't, it didn't take away from the game. I could see if it were obnoxious, but for me, it, it, it didn't bother me at all. Okay. That's cool. I just thought we should acknowledge it. Um, sure. So before we move on to sound and music, I just want to agree with you completely that they took what they did in Eco and Shadow and just combined them in a way that elevated the elements of like scale and height and Mm -hmm. light and color in ways that to repeat like a cliched phrase just took it to new heights in in a literal sense Mm -hmm. and in an artistic sense you know there are these watercolor palettes throughout the game but there's also this realistic like when you're up on a tightrope or something the the particle effects the lighting effects it all feels very Mm -hmm. real It doesn't have to be realistic to feel real. And that's, I think, something that this game really achieved. And the crumbling of the environment, you know, when when something's, uh, you know, crumbling beneath your feet. I mean, it makes you anxious. It's really well done, the timing of it all. And just to kind of piggyback on what you said, I did want to read a quote from uh, Crabmaster2000 again. As he says, As with Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, I continue to be very impressed with the amazing scale of the environments in these games. It's so cool to be alongside this enormous creature and still feel so pathetically minuscule compared with the ruins that you're exploring. Mm. Well said. I mean, you're around this huge creature, but then you're still in this, like, enormous and vast environment, right? I mean, these huge towers, these huge landscapes. You feel like what you're doing is impossible. You feel like you're never going to reach your goal. And the way this game loops back around on itself, how you go to areas more than one time. I remember that from Eco when I was playing, and it's something that I really liked about the game, how you return somewhere and have to approach that same area in a different way. I love how these designers do that. I mean, it's not Metroidvania-esque right. because you're, you know, you're forced to go back to these places, but then you have to figure out these puzzles in a different way, and I think it's just a great use of the environment and of the landscape. The best way that I could maybe describe the environment of this game is vast yet confined. You are confined to these areas. There are only certain ways to manipulate this game, and it's very linear. But you never feel like it's linear. It feels so open. It's the oddest thing. But I think it's something that the designers just capture so well.
gonna believe this, but I don't really have anything special to say about the music except for that it's <laughs> perfect for the game. You know, it's appropriate, and there's many breathtaking moments in this game, and the music complements them quite well. I am going to focus more on the sound and sound effects. So if you have anything to say about the music, now's the time. Because I think the sound effects and voice acting are more important in this game. Well, I'll say someone likes the music because they did release the soundtrack on Very Vine. nice. So it is out there. You can search that. I'm not sure what company did that. I do not have a copy. Maybe surprisingly to some, big as a fan as I am of uh, Team Eco's work. But I'm with you. I thought it was just really appropriate. But it's more of sort of like background. Yeah. You know, I think you mentioned something about the rises and the swells like you get in, you know, Shadow of the Colossus as you're, you know, sort of in a precarious situation. You know, when enemies are attacking, you know, the music kind of gets louder and it's well orchestrated and it's beautiful. I think as you mentioned, it just it just really fits with the game and it's nice. Right. But nothing super standout-ish is, you know, a lot of game soundtracks have. Very good. Well, like I said, I wanted to talk about definitely the sound effects and the voice acting. And one of the things you're going to hear a lot in this game is the voice acting of the boy. And he's actually speaking a, you know, a made-up language. But it's a very effective made-up language you can kind of ascribe feelings to what he's saying. And I noted here that it's a, it, to me, it's a mixture of Japanese and Spanish. And of course the people who developed this game are Japanese, but I just, I just sensed that it was like some kind of Spanish influence. I mean, actually Japanese has a lot of Portuguese in it, but um, there's one thing that the boy commonly says where he says uh, cuidado and it sounds like cuidado in Spanish, you know, which is be careful. But there's so many things that he says that just sound like very authentic, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But, you know, it's it's yeah. a made up language. So I thought that this was really well done in this game. Yes, yeah, it's really well done and it's consistent as well, mm -hmm. you know what he's saying he's, he's going to be saying these things you know sort of over and over again and it fits with whatever command that he's trying to portray and uh even when he does his little pee right. dance, as you mentioned before. right <laughs> uh and the other major sound element here are the sounds that trico makes you know he has so many sounds that add to his life, like the things that make him lifelike. So he does that thing that horses do where they kind of like, or they're clearing their lungs or whatever they do. Mm -hmm. He purrs like a cat. He roars and screams and he has these like anguished, like almost Godzilla-like roar. You know, I'm a huge Godzilla fan, so I was <laughs> thinking about Godzilla a lot when he's, like, roaring and screaming, and it's just awesome. On the other hand, you know, like, you can feel his hurt. You can feel his agony and pain when he's in trouble based on the sound cues. So it sounds like you're in agreement with me here. Absolutely. Yeah, it really uh, pulls at the heartstrings a lot of times, you know, with some of the uh, noises that he makes. Even, I mean, when you pull the spears out of him and it just makes you shudder, you know, I mean, the, the sound he yeah. makes. And though you know you're helping him, but uh, yeah, sound effects in this game are incredible. Even the sounds of him walking, yeah. things crumbling underneath his feet, it's, uh, it's great, sure. beautiful. 
And like I said, I like the sound of the stained glass breaking. That was part of the satisfaction, mm-hmm. the huge smashing sound that it would make when it hit. And the the clank of the soldiers as they're lumbering around, they're all metal, so you would have you know, you have to have the appropriate sound effects and you know, they're very good, especially when Trico bit slaps one of them and it uh you know crumbles and pieces of it fly everywhere it sounds really good yeah and there was one scene i remember one of the eyes you push the cart off the ledge and uh there's a rope attached to it and it flies by your head oh yeah you know you hear that whipping sound of the rope like uh you know and everything crumbling beneath you yeah so good well, man, I think we're getting towards the end of our conversation here. Uh, so I guess we should really talk about the end of the game first, and then we'll get into our final thoughts here. So yeah. at the end of the game, there's a lot of stuff going on here. You kind of defeat, quote unquote, that central power, but the Tricos are still brainwashed and basically, and they're trying, I don't know if it's out of self-preservation or if there's still some of that central power still controlling them, but they really want to kill your Trico. Like we were alluding to earlier, you know, dealing with this ordeal when you're trying to like play the game and do stuff to help your situation. It's very harrowing and traumatic. Oh yeah. My son was screaming. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, at the top of his lungs, the the tail scene, especially he was so upset. Yeah. My daughter was crying. I mean, oh my gosh. <laughs> so emotional. And I told you this. I, I want to bring this up, too, before you For go sure. any further. My family was so involved in this game that I sent you a message. I said, I haven't finished the game yet, but I had to watch the ending. <laughs> right, right. I had to watch a video on the ending because my family is so wrapped up in this. If that damn thing dies, then they're going to hate me. My daughter, even toward the end, she said, I hate you for making me watch that. I'm like... <laughs> that's amazing you're so mean you said i was mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's i mean and this is what attachment to characters can do if you do it right we're big gamers rich we play games all the time where people are getting killed and we watch these dumb cutscenes where we're supposed to feel sympathy or empathy or sadness or we feel exactly nothing. like most of the time you know <laughs> like even games that i really like like persona 5 like persona 5 has some really emotional moments and uh, yeah i'm into it I'm, I'm feeling them but nothing even close to on the realm of what i felt at certain points of this game you know um yeah. and i think again it's because of that animal element if you know if you ever had animals or uh pets that you've become close with you already have that built into you so yeah what do you do help me out i can't remember you jump on one of the tricos and you lose your disc and then you get swatted off the platform and one of the tricos comes to try to bite you out of the air but you fall in its back okay yeah so you're flying around out of control for a little while right but then you end up back on the platform and that's when trico's tail gets ripped off right Yep, and that's when you take it down and destroy the uh, the controlling machine. Right. So after that, Trico is just alive enough to bring you back to your village, and mm-hmm. the villagers understandably are happy to see you, but they're not very happy to see him. So there's this moment, and 
I got to tell you, I had the same feeling your daughter did <laughs> that I didn't know if Trico survived this game. And I actually was under the impression that he dies. I thought I thought I had it spoiled and heard somewhere that he dies at the end. And I can't remember where, but I was under the in- assumption the entire time that Trico dies at the end of this game. So I was kind of mentally yeah. ready for it. And I thought... This is going to be a gut punch if the villagers kill Trico right in front of us right now, you know? Oh, yeah. I thought that was going to yeah. happen for sure. I mean, I was tearing up, man. So I was ready for that, but then... The cruel irony of right? the situation, yeah. Um, but then, so the story writers here give us a little bit of a lifeline where the narrator says, I knew what I had to do, and the boy just tells Trico, you got to get out of here. You got to escape now. So Trico, using his last strength again, just flies away. And then the narration says, oh, actually, one of the villagers says, with his injuries, he won't survive long. And then roll credits. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I thought that was the absolute perfect ending for this game. I was so content with the open-endedness of it. Now I was telling you in messaging that This is why I love Japanese fiction over American fiction, because American fiction, it's always formulaic. There's always a love story. There's always a happy ending, right? Yeah, rainbows and unicorn farts. So this ambiguous ending, that gives you a little bit of hope, but they even tell you, like, he's so hurt. He ain't going to make it, man. And you just don't know, because you're you're in the life of the boy, and he's back home with his village, and his adventure is over. But then they do this thing after. <laughs> Dude, longest credits of my life keeping my kids together. Gosh, it was awful. So they do this thing of the credits where they show the narrator fully grown and he's just with some kids in the village. Goes back to the beginning of the credits with a the disc. Oh, right, right. So yeah, you you actually find yourself at the you know, the image of the title screen is actually the shield. You're rediscovering it as an adult. Yeah, there's some kids in the village that right. dig it up. So yeah. they show it to him, and he just points it in the sky, and there's this beam of light that just goes on seemingly forever, and we f- we fly along with the beam of light over the world and back into the main world where the game takes place, which is this huge compound, and follows the light into a cave slowly, and we see a set of eyes, and then we see another set of eyes. And it's obviously meant to be Trico and... Another Trico, maybe his son or something, I don't know. (laughs) Or the other Trico you save, because you do see the other Trico, the one you knock the helmet off of and save, as you fly away. Okay. So there is two. So there's the, you know, so there's the idea that possibly they've made it, and then you hear a smaller kind of sound Mm. come out. You only get two sets of eyes, but you do hear a sound that is, you know, sort of like a smaller sort of Trico. So you do think that, yeah, maybe this is the same Trico that was your guardian. Yeah. So, man, I got to tell you, this was really tough for me. Like, as a... (laughs) (laughs) As a person who really appreciates good endings to video games, because I know they're not easy to do, I know. But this one, ah, man, I really wish this wasn't in the game. I wish this wasn't, like, canon. You know, like... (laughs) Well, I, for one, am, as I told you, I'm very yeah. thankful this was in the game because it saved my ass in my relationship with my kids. 
who would never watch me play another video game again and completely abandoned video games for the rest of their lives had that thing died. It was the same thing with the horse from Shadow of the Colossus when you try to make that big jump and it falls down yes. into that pit. Yeah. Oh, my kids were so devastated, you know, and so I had to finish the game and show them that the horse was still alive. I don't know, man. I, I understand where you're coming from with the kids, so I'm glad it was like a saving grace that it was just like, oh, don't worry, they're okay. Um, but yeah, it just felt it just felt again like very like an American ending to me. Like there's so many movies where the main character is in some kind of major peril, where by all rights, I, I and I don't want to even name the movie I'm thinking of because it's a major spoiler. But like, dude should be dead at the end of the movie, and it's like. Oh, just at the very end, his eyes open and it's like, oh, everything's okay. And it's like, I did not want that from this game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but I think that's a perfect point for us to go into our final thoughts here. We'll wrap it up and I want final thoughts, but I want to know like, how does this compare to the other games in the trilogy? You know, the usual stuff, would you recommend it and blah, 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 blah. So... I'll go first because you're on record as saying that Shadow of the Colossus is your favorite game of all time. So I'm on the edge of my seat to see what your final recommendation is on this game. So I'll just say I got nothing but love for Fumito Ueda for what he's doing in the world of video games. We play video games, whether it's when you're playing RPGs or third person shooters or first person shooters that are made to fit a template. They're made to fit a mold. They're made to sell as many copies as they possibly can. And, you know, we talked about this, Rich, you and I, in our chat. Like, it's getting bad, you know? We, we have indie games that kind of help stem the tide a little bit as alternatives. But to see from Eco to Shadow to The Last Guardian, I think we have three very, very special games here. And no, they're not perfect. You can go back and listen to the Eco episode. I was not super high on that game when I played it. It took me a while of like just letting it marinate in my mind and just in retrospect realizing how good it is. Um, you got to realize that what we have here is something very, very special. And I think it might be my favorite game in the trilogy. I liked Shadow of the Colossus a lot, but I think that game was maybe a little bit too long, a little bit too big for my liking anyway, that it wasn't just like a game that you could just sit down and play and play through, you know, if that makes sense. Um, because you need, if you're going to play Shadow of the Colossus, you got to set aside two hours in case it's, it turns out to be a tough one. You know what I mean? (laughs) So with the last guardian, at least we do have kind of the same modern convenience of you can play for a half hour if you want, because the game is very liberally checkpointed, which again is good because if the AI starts bugging out, you just reset the checkpoint. So having said all that, I think this is probably my favorite game in the eco trilogy. And wow. I would, okay. this is out of these three games, it's probably the one I would go back to, especially now that it's fresh in my mind. I, I think that knowing how deceptively easy the environmental puzzles are, that if I played it again, I would know more what to do, not what to do exactly, like jump here, turn this lever or whatever, but knowing how to navigate through the game would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And I would say like to recommend this game to somebody, much like we said on the journey episode last month, so long as you can explain these kinds of things to a person that look this is not the 
third-person shooter of the week that's coming out. This is not an open-world superhero game like I was talking about earlier in the show. This is this is something very different. If you've never played Eco or Shadow, this is something you've never experienced before. So yeah, and I gotta say, my connection with Trico was the most connected I've ever been with a character in a game, I think. You guys are homies. <laughs> yeah. And it's made me, <laughs> I, I, you know, I love my cats. I absolutely love my cats. You know, my wife and I don't have children, but for now we just have two cats and we love them. But this game made me so much more observant of my cats and I'm very interested in animal <laughs> behavior. I always have been. So to kind of go through a video game that kind of rekindled my interest in that and just kind of watching my cats and what they do and kind of knowing why they do what they do. Um, it really helped me like <laughs> reconnect, so to speak, with my cats. So yeah, I, uh, I could babble about this game all night, Rich, but uh, I'm so glad we finally got to play it and uh, I would recommend it with certain qualifications. That's all there is to it. So I'm going to kick it over to you. And again, I got to reiterate from a man who calls Shadow of the Colossus his favorite game of all time. What did you think of The Last Guardian? Well, I'm probably going to uh, eco some of your sentiments here. <laughs> See nice. what I did there? <laughs> uh, yeah, this game is a masterpiece. When you put in any of these three games, you know you're going to get a different experience than what you're going to get from any video game experience. I think probably why Shadow of the Colossus looms as my favorite game is because it was the first one that I had ever played from Team Eco. Because of that, and having never played a video game like that before, it just opened my eyes to what a video game could be. It's an incredibly immersive experience. And so some of my love, I think, for Shadow of the Colossus is because of that, it being the first. But then again, as I'm staring at the Shadow of the Colossus poster on my wall, there's a little tagline that says, Some mountains are scaled, others are slain. There's just something so cool about that game, and as far as you being this very minuscule being in this world of giants and slaying them, and just the sort of the puzzle element to the game, I love puzzles that just make Shadow the Colossus so attractive to me. And then the other thing that makes me feel that way is compared to The Last Guardian. In The Last Guardian, it's more of a puzzle sort of companionship game. But there's not a lot of action. Where I would say that Shadow of the Colossus is an action game. And for that reason, Shadow of the Colossus still remains at the top of my list. And uh, it, it just has everything that, that I really love in the game. Art style, beauty, action, platformer, the scale, the story, and just so many questions, you know, going with the story. So much imagination that I have to use with that. Uh, whereas Last Guardian's more kind of wrapped up. But, and having said that, I still love this game. It was awesome. And I would probably put it ahead of Eco in the yeah, trilogy me too. Um, kind of ranking like number two for me so that's that's saying a lot i i loved eco when i played it i mean you know you can go back and listen to the uh, the podcast i thought it was just as special of an experience as shadow of the colossus i loved it i, I just i think it's beautiful this world that ueda has created is captivating i want to go back to it all the time 
I don't think we're going to be able to expect a fourth game. But man, that is the thing that dreams are made of. And as long as I have a system that can play one of his games, I will pay full price for that game. (laughs) Yeah, me too. um, For sure. It's incredible. If you've never experienced one of these three games, just pick one up and and try it out. You're just going to be blown away. I mean, I know people that don't like Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah, I, I get it. You know, it, maybe it's not your type of game. I had someone say I couldn't get past the first boss, and I just put it down because I couldn't figure mm. it out. Well, I get that. Um, it can be a little daunting at times in, in figuring those things out. But give these games a chance. They're incredible. And as far as recommending it, I think that probably... The Last Guardian may be the easier of the three to recommend, and that's why I brought that up. Because I think it is a little more intuitive. I think the story gets wrapped up. It's not as mysterious, and it gets kind of fleshed out as you're playing the game, so you do get that storyline. I don't think the controls are tough. The enemies you can escape from, you're not going to die that much. As long as you're patient, you can figure out these puzzles. So I think it's the easiest of the three to recommend. And uh, yeah, I would definitely give this game really, really high scores. And I am super happy that this was the first game that I played on my PS4. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's a very nice way to christen the PS4, so to speak. Psych, I watched a playthrough of this whole <laughs> game, never plugged up my PS4. <laughs> no way. I'm just kidding. Oh, I, man, I played that would break my heart. <laughs> Uh, my kids were crying you saw me logging screaming in. at a YouTube video. <laughs> Here, watch this, kids. No, that's awesome. And again, I just can't say enough of how glad I am that this game came out. And what I, what in my mind is the Eco Trilogy is just a complete trilogy. And I agree with you, now that I think about it, that this is probably the easier game of the three to recommend just because of... It is an easier game, honestly. Like I had way more trouble with Eco and way more trouble with Shadow, as much as I love those games, than I did with this game, you know? And yeah, I appreciate your thoughts there. I mean, I think that's all I have to say, man. And I think you put your thoughts very succinctly. So if you're ready, we could talk about next month's game. I do want to say one more thing. Please do. And I do want you to talk about something before we get off this call and before I talk about next month's game. You had a quote in the threads. Oh, Oh my God. Am I being ambushed here? Okay. (laughs) You are. You are. And Crabmaster said, that's some pretty strong thoughts. Yeah. But I'm going to read this out, and I really want you to (laughs) discuss this. You said, I'm about halfway through the game. I'm thinking about checkpoints, but I'm also really taking my time. As the breathtaking, jaw-dropping moments unfold throughout this game, a thought occurs to me. I have never been more grateful for anything in gaming in my entire life than the fact that this game, in all bolts, exists. So again, it it holds true in a sense, and, and what I was making reference to there, and maybe I could have explained myself better, was the thing that we were talking about at the top of the episode, or the top of the discussion, is that... This game could have been canceled about a hundred different times over the past 10 years, yeah. you know, and, and by all rights, maybe it should have been canceled. I don't know how many copies it sold, if it was worth it. I bet you Sony <laughs> lost a ton of money making this game. But what I mean is that 
the fact that there is a third game to this trilogy that it's here, it's ours, it's in our consciousness forever, and it can never be taken away, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I was very grateful when Yakuza 5 got localized. Very grateful, very happy. And that game was so successful that it paved the way for more Yakuza games to come out in America. That's awesome. I'm grateful for that, too. But you know what? I played Yakuza 1 through 4, and I wouldn't have been super duper upset if Yakuza 5 didn't come out here. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah, it. Yeah. That, so the degree to which I'm grateful that The Last Guardian exists, just I can't think of anything that surpasses it. Yeah, it feels like a book's been closed yeah. on, on something very important. Right. And, you know, knowing that that was out there and not having a resolution or that never making it to us and knowing how much it was already done, I think would have been gut-wrenching. Yes. So, yeah, I totally agree, man. But, uh, yeah, thank you for clarifying that thought. That's awesome. Yeah, no yeah. problem. All right. Well, in October... <laughs> For better or worse, we're returning to the PS4. <laughs> we're excited about our new systems. We have to play some PS4 games again, and we are playing a PS4 exclusive. We had a lot of people on our threads trying to guess what we were playing. Some said Night Trap, since we had just got that from Limited Run Games, and people could have played it, um, you know, the older version. But we decided to go with a little more accessible game and play Until Dawn. Now, Sean, this is one you've played before, right? Yes, sir. I played it relatively recently, so I'm probably just going to toy around with my save file and tweak some things rather than just playing through the whole game again because my experience is pretty fresh in my mind still. So, But I'm excited for this because this is uh, a very multi-branching type of game, so I'm excited to hear about other people's experiences. Yeah, and being a fan of 80s horror films, especially slasher films, I'm really, really interested to see how this plays out, and I'm hoping that my wife is going to be along with me um, You know, to watch this game. I think it's going to be a fun, fun experience for us this October, and uh, you know, I hope that uh, all of our listeners out there will join us for Until Dawn. Awesome. Well... Rich, this was a really good uh, conversation, man. Thank you for coming on and fleshing out The Last Guardian with me. And uh, it was a good show. Yeah, enjoyed it, man. Great pick. Thank you.
And folks, that'll wrap up another episode. Thanks again for listening, and thank you to everyone who participated in this playthrough. Next month, we will not only go back-to-back with another PlayStation 4 exclusive, but continue our October tradition of creepy and frightening horror titles with the fan-favorite modern adventure title, Until Dawn, hosted by Single Banana. Be sure to sign up at rfgeneration.com. Thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next time on the RF Generation Playcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got this is so much fun. I got it.